Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Sybil. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, our musical series is entering the 80s with a pop rock soundtrack, neon lights, roller skates, and a totally different take on the musical. We'll discuss a film that blends the 40s and the 80s, Gene Kelly with ELO, and the reality of a struggling artist in Venice Beach with the fantasy of the Greek muses. And we'll talk about the career of Olivia Newton-John as we explore the 1980s cult classic Xanadu. You know, that was funny. This time when we were when I was introducing this and everything and you said Xanadu and I pressed the music button, I really wanted it to be the music from Xanadu. I know, I know. It I would have been awesome. I mean, I will be honest with you with this movie. It is it's so nostalgic for me. I watched it so much as a kid and then I didn't watch it for a really long period of time. So when I went back and I watched this, I was like, I remembered all of the lyrics, all of the songs and almost none of the show. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really music holding a movie together. <laughs> I, yes. I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that is 100. And and maybe like the acting because it is like for that time period, it seems like cheesing over top, but it's actually really well acted. Oh my goodness! Okay, we're gonna have things to talk about in general opinion. <laughs> I'm not even gonna touch that yet. Uh, I can't <laughs> okay. wait! I can't wait. But um, but yeah, no, like usually the, our our theme music, I'm like, yeah, this is groovy. And the, today I'm just like, no, if you say Xanadu, you have to hear dun, dun, dun. Exactly. you gotta get that ELO exactly. music in there. I don't know. And then immediately feel like roller skating in circles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like I was just mentioning that, like the music is like so central to this movie. And I mean, it, uh, most musicals, the music is pretty central, but I think this one in particular were you a fan of Olivia Newton-John or were you a I, fan I of Electric was. Light Orchestra? I was. And I, as a kid, I thought they were both amazing. I love them both. I mean, I, I don't – can you not be a fan of that? If you grew up in the 80s, can you not be a fan of ELO and Olivia Newton-John? Like they're so central to that time period. Oh, there – I definitely had friends who made fun of me for liking Olivia Newton-John at least. And I had friends who were completely unaware of ELO. So I think you can. It's just I don't know why you would, really. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think of them – they're in the same land in my brain as like Michael Jackson in that period. They were on They were on everything all the time when you were like listening to the stereo and the radio. And like they were everywhere all the time. Now, do you think had you do you think you had heard of their music before the movie, or do you think the movie came first for you? Because oh, for the movie me, definitely came first for me. Absolutely, yeah, me as well. Yeah, I definitely remember like seeing this movie like on reruns, and then like getting into the music like later. And actually, I don't think I got into ONJ until much later. But I was like a huge Olivia Newton-John fan, like like specifically a fan who bought albums um, in my late teens. Mm -hmm. And so I have like a big connection to her music. Like when she passed away recently, it was really sad for me. Like, yeah, me too. So did you have albums and all that? And I, like I did not because I was, I grew up crazy poor. I never had albums, but um, I wore like her like blue eyeshadow and I went blonde, like didn't everybody in the eighties, I went blonde and I like, at, there's a scene where she's wearing like a little white outfit with like, um, it's very like flowing and I had one and just like, oh. I was, and I hated Greece and like I, Greece came out first. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I hated Greece. And I, I mean, but I knew I noticed her there and became a huge fan then. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize like I loved Greece too. So it was like I, both of the movies were really big for me, but the funny thing is like, yeah, like speaking of Greece, I became a fan of Olivia Newton-John like and got her records, like more than a casual fan who just liked it when I heard it. I became a fan after I watched Pulp Fiction. And then I went back and watched all Travolta's movies. And then I realized how much I like Grease. And then I was like, oh, Olivia Newton-John. And then I went back and watched Xanadu again. And then I like, it was this whole thing that mm-hmm. just like unfolded. And then I went to Goodwill and all her albums were like a buck at Goodwill. So like yeah. I'm talking actual vinyl record albums. I purchased all of them. Nice. And then I, and tapes, I had like her um, greatest hits tapes. And when I was 19 years old, I have all these vivid memories of like just biking around Lake Geneva, listening to her with, on my Walkman. Don't listen to headphones while you're biking, but I did it. And um, it was just great music, like Heart Attack and Make a Move on Me. Not songs that are in Xanadu, but these just get really physical, like, get physical. Like, yeah, that wasn't as good though. I like the B sides a little better, but yeah, like, but like I would listen to all those that that era music, mm-hmm. right? And they're and they're mm-hmm. sexy and poppy, and they're just fun. And her voice is so good. And Xanadu, man, I have that tape still. I wore it out as well, so it's just like, yeah. Well, and it's interesting, like the connection, like you were like making with Travolta. What Olivia Newton John opened up ABBA for me. So hmm. I didn't even know really about ABBA until um, she she gave an interview once where she's like, oh, yeah, no, I totally love ABBA. And I was like, who's ABBA? And wow. it opened it up for me. And I was like, oh, my God. And I became a huge ABBA fan at the same time because, you know, Olivia told me that, you know, she was a huge fan. I was a huge ABBA fan, too, but I got it from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert and Muriel's Wedding because I saw the films. And so it was like films were opening music to me mm. in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as to ELO, yeah, I got ELO off of Olivia Newton-John. And then I went to Goodwill and all their albums were like a bucket. <laughs> Goodwill as well. Right. So I was like listening to all the ELO albums. And my God, that for me, ELO is like the most nostalgic music. Yes. Like, I don't know exactly. I don't know enough about music to know why that is. I don't know if it's like minor chords or something like that. But just like so many like beautiful but sad songs well, like also, Midnight Blue or something yeah, like that. I mean, also ELO did. It was like a sound that nobody had heard yet. When they came out with it, like their music was unlike anything else when it came out. Yeah. And just, I think, I don't know if we mentioned it, but ELO stands for Electric Light Orchestra. So it was kind of this idea of like symphonic music, but but electronic music, like blended together. Do you have any favorites of their songs or of Olivia's songs? Like, No, I don't think I really have a favorite favorite. They're just like those songs when they come on, like I have them intermixed in my playlist. And like when they come on, you can't help but like sing to it, dance to it, be excited that it's on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I mentioned a few of my O&J favorites and I mentioned Midnight Blue. That's one of my ELO favorites. Mm -hmm. I also really love Living Thing. And I remember that was on the end credits for Boogie Nights. And I was just like, ah, so grooving out on that. And Boogie Nights, another movie with roller skating. Right? Yeah. (laughs) No, it is. And it's, it's fun that like when a movie can take you back in time and have you like bring up all this feeling and emotion, regardless of if, if it's a like masterpiece or not in its own way it is yeah definitely and I'm, i was all, and i'm also just thinking about speaking of back in time like like just when we when i came to this music it was the mid to late 90s and that was like a looking back at the late 70s and the early 80s kind of period of time and so that was really fun for me it sounds like you were more into it in the era itself than i was i was way into madonna during the actual 80s 
but it sounds yeah. like you got into it early. I did. I did. I, you know, and I want to say it was probably like Mr. Blue Sky, which is like the one that almost everybody knows that got yeah. me the most into it. And I think it's because my mom had like an eight track. And so oh. it would just play in the car all the time. You know, <laughs> it was like a single eight track and would just play over. So that and Barry Manilow have like a space in my heart forever. <laughs> all right, everyone. So before we get started today, a few notes. First, as usual, there will be a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will warn you when the spoilers are about to start. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And I'll encourage you to just follow us on any of those platforms. I tend to interact with people quite a bit on Twitter, so that's a good place to um, interact if you want to talk there, too. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We can always use the promotion. And finally, if you like what we're doing here at Every Romcom and want to help us keep the show running, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee page at buymeacoffee.com slash everyromcom. All the donations there will be used towards producing and hosting the podcast. And we'll put a link to our Buy Me a Coffee page in the show notes. And just like thanks in advance to anyone who's willing to help out. It really makes a difference and means a lot. And now let's listen to the trailer for Xanadu. Open your eyes and hear the magic. Universal Pictures announces the most dazzling romantic musical fantasy in years. Xanadu. Starring Olivia Newton-John. Michael Beck. Gene Kelly. Xanadu. It's a love story about a boy and girl from two very different worlds whom no one can keep apart. It's a spectacular entertainment that will transport you beyond your dreams. Xanadu. Where time stops and the magic never ends. Xanadu. That trailer is somehow so perfect. <laughs> I know it's it, it, and like we listen to a lot of these, right? Because we we play them a lot. Most of them, you like listen to, you're like whatever. I don't think this does like per se this movie justice. This one feels exactly like you're gonna be watching it. Like that's how it feels the whole time. 
Yeah, and it just, I, I don't know what it is, though. It's the sort of naive earnestness of the whole, like, narrator. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Time stops, and, like, some, I, and dreams never die or something. I don't even know if he said that, but that's the kind of thing he said. And, like, a boy and a girl from two <laughs> very different worlds. Oh, like, fucking phenomenal. I know. It's, it's, it's so, it is so over-the-top melodramatic, and yet the whole time you're like, I'm here for this. I'm 100% here for this. <laughs> And as usual, of course, this is a podcast, so you can't see what's going on. If you can see what's going on, this movie is such a visual extravaganza of just, your eyes are just like, what am I supposed to even look at in this scene half the time? It's, so It is. It is. There, and there's like all kinds of stuff. It is worth like rewatching many times because there is so much stuff going on in the background. It's a great movie to watch with like a group who can like, you can both mock it, but also enjoy it at the same time and just like sing along with the songs. Like it's just really good like that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So Xanadu came out on August 8th, 1980. It was directed by Robert Greenwald. It was written by Richard Christian Dannis and Mark Reed Rubel. And it stars Olivia Newton-John, Michael Beck, and Gene Kelly. The basic premise is Sonny Malone is a struggling artist and he's stuck in a job that he, of course, hates because, you know, that's what happens in the 80s. Um, he was doing commercial painting. When he throws the scraps of his latest failed painting out the window, he unwittingly summons a Greek muse named Kira, who kisses him and then disappears. While looking for her, Sonny meets Danny McGuire, a retired man with a dream to open a club. With some help from Kira, Sonny and Danny begin planning their like opening of this nightclub called Xanadu. Meanwhile, Sonny is falling in love with Kira, of course, but he doesn't know that she's a muse and that muses aren't supposed to fall in love with mortals. Star-crossed, everyone. Yep, you know, it happens every day. Mm. <laughs> so there's a lot to know about Xanadu. Um, some of the facts will sprinkle throughout the, the show here, but here's the beginning. So according to a making-of documentary that's on the 2008 DVD release, the story of Xanadu was kind of cobbled together from like several different inspirations. So first of all, the studios at the time wanted to capitalize on the roller disco craze of the 1970s by making a roller disco movie. So this is their attempt to make yet another roller skating movie, and we'll talk about those a little later in the show. So that idea was then going to be contained within Mark Reed Rubel's original script. And his script was about the culture of Venice Beach at the time. And it was a pretty like basic story with a commercial painter like we have with Sonny Malone in the movie. And another man, I think, I think there was also a different man who was in love with a rock star. And then there's a big nightclub scene at the end in a club that is named Xanadu. But there was like no fantasy element. It was like a reality-based movie that was supposed to be like about the culture of Venice Beach, right? Um, so see, let me know if I can cut in here. I think that this is yeah. this is always interesting when you like see the background of how films films are kind of put together because you can see that like there were a lot of hands making decisions, and I can just imagine the meetings that went on where the, the guys like I have this script like cool, but you know what we want roller skating. And he's like, um, yeah, all right. And they're like, and also we want, um, all right. Okay. And actually, you know, it's a completely different film. Yeah. And then this one just kept evolving because there's all these other elements came in. Like Joel Silver, the producer, wanted to make a disco version of the 1947 Rita Hayworth film, Down to Earth, which involved a Greek muse coming to Earth. So, so this element got added in as well, right? And I think the musical element kind of partially also got involved when like Olivia Newton-John and Gene Kelly signed on mm -hmm. the project. So it's hard to really actually like, it's hard to tell from the, like what sources are available, what happened in what order, but things were coming at them from different directions. So they got this other screenwriter in, Richard Christian Dannis, and he was brought in to kind of change Rubel's script. 
And like, if I'm going to judge like what was going on with the script, I'm, I think of the two writers, um, Mark Reed Rubel seemed to have like a better career overall as a writer. So I'm not going to blame the script on him. I don't think Um, he had previously written the feature film almost summer and then he also wrote the feature film Big Business. You know, that movie with like Lily Tomlin yeah. and um, Bette Midler, which is, was a kind of funny movie, I remember. So, and he'd also done several TV movies. Like, so I don't know. Maybe his original script was like much better. I don't know. And I'm not saying that Xanadu is bad because it turned into this wonderful thing. But I don't think the script is the strength here, well, per se. If, if he's alive, may he contact us and tell us like how the script really was in his mind <laughs> and how yeah. he really feels. Right. Does, does it feel like he's Steve, got Stephen King where like, you know, every time they make one of his one of his books into a movie, he's like, I don't even know what just happened. Yeah, but sometimes I think Stephen King is wrong. <laughs> so like it's like that's how he might he might feel. Like he's just like, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. just let that script go and was like, whatever, I got paid, I, my money's in the bank. So uh, as to the script, both Olivia Newton-John and director Robert Greenwald said that the script was less than ideal, and they noted that it was continually being rewritten during filming. And then Robert Greenwald actually said in the making of documentary that he was dreaming up musical numbers as he was directing. So it sounds like the musical numbers weren't even necessarily in the script. And Greenwald was actually just creating those. And that's like the bulk of the movie right there, right? right? That's like the good part, at least, of the movie. The other parts are just like there to hang the musical numbers on. Yeah, it's it's so it's such a weird process. It sounds like I really my husband was like, "Is there a book on making of this movie? There should be." And I was like, "There really should be. There really should be." And part of me would want to do some, something like that, but it would take for a long a long time. And I don't even know if you'd be able. Well, to get and now the people that you know that, Olivia Newton John isn't with us, she won't be able to yeah. talk about it. Which you know, both the stars are really not with us. Which would yeah, because yeah. this is one of those films that like you can always tell a movie maybe isn't going to be good and might be off the rails when you are literally changing the script every day and and putting in new scenes that never existed. Yeah. Right. Well, so it's amazing it turned, that Xanadu turned out the way it did. Yeah. That there was a muse involved somewhere that helped it stay something beautiful anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Gene Kelly um, also commented to his biographer, Clive Hirshhorn, that this movie could have been made in a third of the time for a third of the cost. So Gene Kelly, as you know from our On the Town episode, had experience as a director, and he was just kind of like, it sounds like kind of shaking his head a little bit. Oh, I'm sure he was like drinking, he was throwing back the scotch and being like, this movie is a hot mess. <laughs> I don't know if he was drinking, but he's probably thinking it was a hot mess. I agree with that part. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So Xanadu was Olivia Newton-John's first film coming off of Greece, and it was Gene Kelly's last feature film role. He did a little bit of other work after, but no more movies. And this is an interesting thing. Kelly had initially agreed to do the film, but said he wouldn't dance in it. But then he came in and he like kind of quizzed Kenny Ortega about what type of dancing Ortega hypothetically would have Kelly do if Kelly agreed to dance. And apparently Ortega sort of impressed him enough that Kelly said that he would dance then. And interestingly, he became kind of a mentor and friend to Kenny Ortega over the years. Um, And and of course, Kenny Ortega did like dirty dancing Mm -hmm. and so forth. He went on to do a lot of other great stuff. So that's pretty cool. I I think it's interesting that Gene Kelly is in this movie at all. It's just like one of those like weird random pieces that you're like, okay. I think like there are going to be a few things that I'll mention as we go that I think make it like um, the kind of the connections to his work that are brought in. And maybe those were brought in after his involvement, but it's, it's kind of cool Mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. So as to casting though, Olivia Newton-John had suggested that they hire then little known Mel Gibson to take Michael Beck's role. 
but Michael Beck was chosen because he previously worked with the producers on the warriors. And I'm just thinking like, what would cinema history have been like if Mel Gibson had been in Xanadu? Also, right? what difference would this movie be? Like, it's fascinating to think about like the alternate reality where this, that movie exists. Yeah. And I don't know, like I, maybe he would have also already have done road warrior. Cause that came out in 79, but maybe he wouldn't have. And like, it would have just changed everything potentially. Mm-hmm. Like I just like, Whoa, my mind is blown. Yeah, a little agree. Bit, so. I agree. Well, yeah. When I read that, and I, when I read through the show notes on this, I was like, Whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> um, Xanadu had a big marketing campaign when it was coming out and it included having boutiques and department stores where you could buy Xanadu costumes. And I'm just like, why is there not a boutique and a department store right now where I can buy a Xanadu costume? I told you that I, I totally like made my own little costume, my little outfit for this. And I was not a small girl. I'm kind of fat and I still wore it and I loved it and I didn't even care. So you like sewed it like properly? Or you my just grandmother found was a teamstress. So like I told her oh. what I wanted and I got the little pieces for it. So I had like, so it's, it's that little, the little like white roller skating outfit that she has. And I yeah. had, so I had like, a, like, I had like scarves for the bottom instead. So it was a little more fairy-like because I just wanted that movement. So I wanted a lot yeah. more movement. And then I had like a little like, like busted, like corsety top that had like, like, fat, like, like sheer fabric over the top of, of the whole thing. And I loved it. I wore it all the time. I wore it way more than I probably should have. That's awesome. So I have found two different budgets listed for Xanadu. <laughs> uh, one site said that it, it was $20 million, And another site said that it was 9 to $13 million, according to Robert Greenwald, which is still a range, right? right. So 9 to $20 million, somewhere in there. And it grossed $23 million. So like technically it probably made a little bit of money, but like not much and, and maybe not even because sometimes they don't include the marketing costs in the budget. Yeah. So who knows? It was not successful though, put it that way. Yeah. And critics also did not like it. I love this. Esquire ran a headline that read, in a word, Xana don't. <laughs> <laughs> they felt very proud of that. I'm sure they're like, I'm so smart. Yep. Yep. <laughs> The soundtrack was way more successful, however. It reached number four on the Billboard charts. It had five top 20 singles, and it sold more than two million copies. So yay for yeah, that. Yeah, so um, she was laughing her way to the bank. She's like, whatever, I'm making all the money with my soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, I'm not just Olivia, like ELO mm-hmm. and potentially some other people too. Yeah. yeah. And um, as to people's feelings about the movie, Gene Kelly uh, said in one of his is quoted in one of his biographies as saying, I have to admit it's a terrible picture, but I must say it was fun working with Olivia. And for that reason alone, I do not regret the experience. Um, He also went on to say it also showed me just how little today's crop of youngsters actually know about making musicals. And that was kind of depressing. So despite its critical drubbing at the time, Xanadu has become a cult classic, and it's often screened um, in revivals or for large groups. There was an audience in 2002 at Outfest in LA of 1,200 people, for example. Um, And unlike our last two films, On the Town and The Music Man, Xanadu was a movie musical first and was then made into a Broadway musical, which is a trend we've seen so much of. We've Mm -hmm. talked about that on some of our other episodes, how a lot of the movies have been turned into musicals. And the musical version was written by the screenwriter of Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, Douglas Carter Bean. Here's a here's an interesting thing. Uh, he told um, Entertainment Weekly he wasn't impressed with the film's screenplay or plotting, saying, quote, the first time I saw it, I thought they had misplaced a reel. <laughs> like... <laughs> 
He was given permission to rewrite the story. And then he said, quote, my version has quaint little additions like character development. There are actually just five lines from the movie that are in the play. Um, I, I've se- I have not seen the Broadway version of this, but I did see um, a version of it in Los Angeles um, by a small theater company, super small. And I loved it. And one of the things is they like they had like cotton candy that you purchased and they had like you would like have glow sticks and stuff like and at the, the very last like Xanadu number, you get up and you party. It was nice, really cool. Nice. Something, something that you would not see on a Broadway stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds cool. I think that might have actually if if it's what I'm thinking of, what what era was that? Um, when, yeah, when, the aughts. What time? The aughts. Yeah, so that might actually be one of the inspirations for getting that Broadway musical made. I read about like that those Xanadu live shows or whatever were one of the reasons that they decided to make it into the Broadway version. Cool. So, and and yeah, and that version premiered in 2007. It ran for 513 performances and it was nominated for four Tonys. So yeah, did pretty well for itself. All right, let's get into like our general opinion of the film. And we've talked a little bit about it already, but um, just maybe tell like, what is our first time we saw it? Um, how many times have we watched it over the year? Whatever, go crazy. And so I'll let you uh, go first. Um, so I, I do not remember the very first time I ever saw this because I don't remember my childhood very well. But I do remember watching it because I had HBO. So it was on HBO all the time. And I would watch it over and over. And anytime it was on, I was like, oh, but Xanadu's on. Like, it did not matter. Like, I was like, we're going to watch Xanadu. It could be like five minutes left. I'm like, we're watching Xanadu. I mean, the five, last five minutes, the best minutes anyways. Let's do it. And I, <laughs> I, I watched it so much as a kid. And then, you know, it stopped being played on and whatever. And I never, I didn't really watch it again. I watched it again in college. Um, and that was kind of the last time I saw it until now. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so I have a very similar childhood story about that. I also don't remember the first time I saw it, but I remember like I watched it so much when it came on TV that like my dad would get like annoyed because I would just be like very insistent. I'm like, no, I'm going to watch. This. I think I just called it the roller skating movie. I'm going to watch the roller skating movie. And like I just needed to see it. It was like weird. It was like I was in a trance yes, or something. It so. is It is that you do get like this trance like state when watching it. It's like you can't look away because you don't want to look away. It's just, it's so much spectacle. There's just so much spectacle going on. And I remember like watching it as a kid. I don't even think I understood the plot. Like, I don't think that if you'd ask me like, what's the yeah. plot? I'm like, I don't know. They're roller skating and they're singing and they've got like some magic stuff going on. Yeah. And there's like even a cartoon Which section, is the best part, so, like- period. It's like all of a sudden you're dropped into an acid trip. <laughs> yeah like well, yeah when I was a kid it just seemed like so fun and like I actually learned how to roller skate when I was five years old too and I don't actually know if I learned to roller skate because of the movie or like if I liked the movie because I roller skated it's really not clear which came first but they they went together a little bit yeah. right I can do that yeah. I can and then yeah. And then, like you said, it kind of fell off a little bit and we didn't have a tape of it. But then, like I said, in the sort of mid to late 90s, there was the Re- Livy Newton-John revival for me that kind of came through Quentin yeah. Tarantino, weirdly enough. And <laughs> I was like listening to all her music and I got a t- DVD of Xanadu and I would listen, watch that a fair amount. And like, yeah, and I've watched it like a little bit over the years, like every few years. A couple years ago, I wanted to get a Xandu costume made so I could like tr- like dress up like Kira and go roller skating like that. But it was just like a little more money than I wanted to invest in getting a custom costume made. And plus, like the last time I tried to roller skate, it was really bad. I think I had bad roller skates now. 
Cause like I tripped on like a wood chip and hurt my hand. So I do still want to roller skate again. It's like my goal, but like didn't work out. Check, last check your time. wheels, check your wheels. Um, I know that a lot of people who roller skate, they're just like, they do, you're often you're, you just need new wheels or you need to get the, the ball bearings changed in your wheel. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I just bought a crappy pair of skates because I left my good pair in Korea. Sadly, <gasps> That's terrible. I know yeah, those. Yeah, I know yeah. those skates. I had to leave them behind. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I, I try to think about like so when I was watching it this time, I was trying to think about what if this had been released now, but like on Netflix, like it went straight to Netflix, which is completely normal now. What would have been like? Would it have people be like made fun of it, or would they like sitting there and watched it and been like, oh yeah, this is like if this had been released during the pandemic. People would have been like, this is what everybody needed. If if it caught on, because it's so much harder to get people's attention in a streaming environment than it is, is like such, back in 1980. Yeah, but this is such a weird, it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people should be obsessed with this now. I feel like they should just be watching Xanadu now and be obsessed with it. I agree. So no need to make a new one. I, I agree. <laughs> really? I agree. And maybe we should do a remake of Xanadu. Somebody out there, you do a remake of Xanadu, but also maybe give it a whole new script because like for reals. Maybe I don't know what the Broadway one was like, but maybe the Broadway one was really good. Yeah, Who knows? To, like, turn yeah. that into it. I, I would, I would be intrigued to see like if somebody could pl- actually create a plot that made sense around the musical numbers. Yeah. Any anything else to say about the movie? Like, like when you've watched it, like most more recently, is it still something you find enjoyable? Like, is are you more critical of it now? I, I like, don't. I don't think. I I don't think you go into Xanadu with like critical. Like, I I don't think you know what you're getting into, which is like a weird movie. And so for me, I know that when like, I I mean, I was excited to sit down and watch it again for the pod. I was like, I'm super excited. I get to watch Xanadu. And I was watching it like, I remember almost none of this. So clearly didn't stick with me. And also none of it's important. But then like we get to the dance numbers. (laughs) And I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. Once again, it's a spectacle, right? So like the sets are like, it is this old time musical feel where like the sets are sumptuous and you have all this stuff going on. You have like multiple people in background doing crazy stuff. You're like, did you just hire strange artisans? Because like you could, because you had like unlimited budget. Yes, like facts. No, I think Kenny Ortega just brought in a bunch of random talented people he knew to do that. And so like, like, I I think because of that, you I, I think that this movie has legs and people, it, it doesn't matter when you get to watch it again, you can enjoy it. I think for me, I think it's one of these films that people either buy into it totally and let it seep into them or they will hate it and they just should turn it off and just not bother. Cause like, it's really like, I can see critical things about it, but like I, then they float away immediately and I'm just like back in. I'm like, yeah, okay, you have to hundred percent okay. suspend disbelief in every way but this is about magic and muses like you're like what you you can't put it in reality it's like a it is like a live action cartoon all right all right so i guess um i guess we can talk more about our opinions on individual scenes as we go and let's get into the whole cast and crew and we've covered a few of the cast and crew on previous episodes so for more information on gene kelly check out every rom-com episode 59 on on the town and I, I put way too much information on Gene Kelly. In that there was episode. so much. Sorry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and for more information on choreographer Kenny Ortega, check out every rom-com episode 18 on Dirty Dancing. All right. Now we're going to talk about Olivia Newton-John. Oh, my goodness. So Olivia Newton-John, special person to me, one of my favorite female vocalists of all time, and by all accounts, a, a lovely individual mm-hmm. as well. She was born in 1948 in England, but her family moved to Australia in 1954. Uh, She had, interestingly, she had famous ancestors on her mother's side of the family. Like her grandfather, Max Bourne, 
was a German Jewish physicist who won the Nobel Prize and hung out with Einstein, yeah, which is awesome. I mean, that's, that's pretty I mean, amazing. So these relatives on her mother's side emigrated to the UK in 1933 to escape the Nazis. Newton John's father was also prominent. He was a member of MI5 and he took Nazi Rudolf Hess into custody during World War II. So she herself began singing and playing guitar in her teens. Uh, she had, Eventually she won a talent contest, which resulted in her getting work on Australian television and in a movie in Australia. And the contest prize was a trip to England. So in 1965, she took the trip to England. And then in England, she began singing in clubs, which led to her having her first single in 1966, Till You Say You'll Be Mine. And she was getting kind of lonely, but then her friend Pat Carroll moved to the UK and they began performing in clubs together under the name Pat and Olivia. And then they eventually ended up on TV. And then this is the craziest thing I've learned, actually, even crazier than her family. So Xanadu might not have been Olivia Newton-John's strangest film. In 1970, she was in a movie called Tomorrow, spelled T-O-O-M-O-R-R-O-W. And it was like part of like, she was in part of this like fake monkeys-like rock group that they'd put together for the movie. And the plot of the movie is that like space aliens kidnap this rock group to benefit from their like music's vibrations or okay, something. Okay, so I've seen this, like, I've gonna, seen this movie. You have not. Have you really? I've 100% seen this movie. I would say instead of like the fake monkeys, though, it's kind of like that. It's more like Gem. Oh, yeah. It's so like Chick Rock. And I I do remember this film. I also watched it as a kid. Once again, we had HBO, right? So like I watched some very strange things. This movie played all the time. Wow. Like, because I could not find like, I could not find any sign of it any except for a few YouTube clips. But the YouTube clips I saw, I was like, what the hell is it is very and I had completely forgotten it until you said I was like, Oh, I've seen this movie. And I don't even know if I understood that it was Olivia Newton John in it. (laughs) But I do remember there was and there was like a bunch of singers and it was it was really weird. And it feels like very like, acid trip 70s kind of thing. Yeah. So there you go. Olivia Newton-John has made some really mm-hmm. weird movies in yeah. general. So after that um, movie kind of failed to take off and that group failed to take off, Olivia began working with music producer John Farrar and in 1971 released her first album, If Not For You. And that was a covers album. And then she followed that up with the album Olivia in 1972. She also got a boost around the same time when Cliff Richard began inviting Olivia on his popular show. Like he was way more famous at the time. And um, I really don't remember much about Cliff Richard other now, though, than the fact that he had a duet with Olivia Newton-John on Xanadu. He was the guy singing in Suddenly. And that was kind of her returning the favor to Cliff oh, Richard. Oh, okay. Way. Yeah. And I, that is my one of my favorite songs on the whole soundtrack. They, their voices are so beautiful Agreed. together, I think. Yeah. So, and then in 1973, Olivia released the album, Let Me Be There. And the title song was her first top 10 hit in America and charted number one on the country charts as well. So she had a bit of a country phase in her early days. I Honestly Love You from her 1974 album became her first number one hit in the US and won her a Grammy for album of the year and best female pop vocal performance. And then in 1975, have you never been mellow became a number one hit on both the pop and country charts again. So she was like blowing up in the seventies. And at this point she was releasing like at least one album a year, but her next big breakout was like 
her work on Greece in 1978. And that blew her up even more. Like Greece was like this phenomenon. It was the highest grossing musical of all time until 2008 when Mamma Mia came out. And we will cover Greece in our high school movie series that's coming up later this year. So never you fear. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Y'all wait. So after Grease, Olivia changed her musical style. She released the album Totally Hot that had more of a rock edge. And then Xanadu was Olivia's follow-up movie to Grease. And like we said, the movie didn't go over so well, but she had the number one song, Magic, and her song Suddenly and Xanadu also charted. And this is totally cool. Olivia met her first husband, Matt Latanzi, while working on Xanadu. He was um, a dance double. And he also, you can see him very briefly. He appears as the young Gene Kelly in the Whenever You're Away From Me song. He's a nice ass. <laughs> really? How could you tell? He's so far in the background. You tell. <laughs> wow, you're really, you're really looking for asses. I do. I look so for asses, no. especially on men. <laughs> okay. So then after Xanadu, Olivia released Physical, which is probably her like best known non-soundtrack album, came out in 1981, sold over 10 million copies worldwide. That's because it was about sex, uh, quietly, at a time that you didn't really sing about that. Yeah. Especially women. Yeah. And it was just, it had bangers. It did, it did. But it. like, I think that that is like, if you look at the reason. So in 1983, um, Olivia appeared in another movie with John Travolta, Two of a Kind, it was not well received critically. It wasn't a hit. Um, and it also had like some weird, like otherworldly plot devices in it. Like I've seen it. It's not very good. I have not seen this one. And, yeah. I mean, you can watch it as a curiosity, no, but that's about it. Yeah. Not even a musical. Olivia Newton-John released one more album, Soul Kiss, before taking some time off to stay home with her daughter, Chloe Rose, born in 1986. And then she released a few more albums in the late 80s and early 90s, but like she never really had an album that was as, as successful again. Like her kind of time in the zeitgeist was kind of over at that point. Um, in 1990, now this is interesting, she appeared in a, a, apparently this is a minor cult classic, the TV movie A Mom for Christmas, where she plays a store mannequin who comes to life long enough to fulfill a girl's dream of having a mom at I Christmas. I do remember this movie. I do remember this. I was like, I was like, what? I'm like, oh wait, the mannequin one where she plays a mannequin. Which, if you wait till the very end, you'll understand now why. Yeah, I've not, I've not seen that either. What? I'm just like, wow, she's just no, she's just bringing the the oddities yeah. out. Like she's like, like I don't even know how she's choosing roles, but it's amazing. So then, on a more somber note, in 1992, she planned to make a comeback with the release of her Back to Basics Greatest Hits album. But her plans to tour and promote the album were interrupted when she was diagnosed with breast cancer at 44 yeah. years old. So she, she did recover from that bout with cancer. And out of that, she became a lifelong advocate for breast cancer research, care, and diagnosis. But um, this will come back. Yeah. But um, in addition to her work on cancer issues, she'd already begun advocating for environmental causes, too. So she's just been like this lifelong advocate, as well as being a performer. So in terms of her professional career, uh, she appeared in a few other TV movies and series in the 90s, as well as the ensemble movie It's My Party. She followed that up with a role in the movie Sorted Lives in 2000, and that also became a short-lived TV series. And in the 2000s, she made more TV appearances, including she had a special appearance on Glee where she did a new version of the video physical with Jane Lynch's character, Sue Sylvester. It's glorious. So that was yeah. kind of... Yeah, that was kind yeah. of a big deal when that happened. Um, she divorced her first husband in 1995 
and in 2008 married her second husband, eco-entrepreneur John Easterling. And then in the 2010s, she appeared in the movie Score, a hockey musical, which I also, I don't know what that's about. And it kind of like a raucous, like a uh, wedding rom-com, A Few Best Men, which actually looks kind of good. It looked like it had the guy who goes to Wisconsin and love actually in it. I feel so. like, so I have a spe- special place in my heart for um, sports films. And so I need to go find this score, a hockey musical. So her last two acting credits are kind of bizarre ones. Um, apparently she was in Sharknado 5, Global Swarming in 2017, which I'm almost might have to see Sharknado 5 now. Mm. I don't know. And she was in something called The Very Excellent Mr. Dundee in 2020, where she appeared as herself. And this movie is indeed about Crocodile Dundee star Paul Hogan. Okay. (laughs) You know what? We do know that she chose based on feeling. That's what she did. Yep. (laughs) Yes, she sure did. Like, that sounds like it's going to be fun. So she continued to release albums and performing concerts and tours in the late 90s through the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, She did a few Christmas albums, including one with John Travolta. Um, Yeah, but she never, again, she never quite hit quite as big. Then in 2013, she again fought and recovered from cancer, but she didn't make that public at the time. And in 2015, she founded the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness and Research Center in Melbourne, Australia. And that center holds clinical trials and also has inpatient and outpatient wards. So kind of a big Mm. deal. And then in 2017, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And in 2020, she and her husband created the Olivia Newton-John Foundation Fund for the purpose of studying how plant medicine might be used to treat cancer. So a lot of her life has really been about this like cancer advocacy, like cancer research, like all this. In 2021, she released her last single, Window in the Wall, and she sang that with her daughter, Chloe Latanzi. And then last year, she died at 73 years old from the breast cancer that had returned. So, yeah, she received a ton of tributes upon her death. And like the state of Victoria in Australia gave her a state funeral. And in 2019, she had also been made a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty the Queen. So technically, I should have been calling her Dame Olivia Newton-John. We all should from now on. Just that's how we're going to do it. All right. If you want to do that for the rest, if you want to commit to that for the rest of the podcast, I'm okay with that. I don't think I have the... She already has like the longest name ever. You're like, Dame Commander Olivia (laughs) Newton-John. That's amazing, though. I mean, she... Listen, for somebody who, who... did the amount of breadth of work that she did, you know, she deserves all the accolades that she's gotten. Yeah. And just like, like, like I said, she's supposed to have been like just a lovely Mm -hmm. person as well. Just like she, like so many people reached out and had wonderful things to say about her. And after all that, we're going to go to Michael Beck, who is not going to sound as amazing as ONJ, but you know, he is, he was in the movie. So he was born 1949 in Memphis, Tennessee. He attended college on a football scholarship, but also began acting in college and after graduating, attended London Central School of Speech and Drama. His first credited role on IMDb is the TV miniseries Holocaust from 1978. His two feature films before Xanadu were Madman and The Warriors. Beck appeared in many TV series and TV movies in the 80s and also in feature films, including Battle Truck, Megaforce, and The Golden Seal. That is such an 80s lineup of titles, right? I was just about to say, I was like, this is, you can't be more 80s than that, you know? (laughs) 
Mega Force. Golden Seal <laughs> Battle Truck. Um, Beck appeared in only two movies in the 90s, Forest Warrior and The Jungle Book, Search for the Lost Treasure. He continued to work in TV movies and series throughout the, the 90s, and his projects included Murder, She Wrote, Babylon 5, and Walker, Texas Ranger. Since 2000, Beck has appeared in Nash Bridges and Jag, the 2015 indie film The Grace of Jake, and he's done voice work for video games reprising his role in the movie The Warriors. These days, Beck is a frequent narrator of audiobooks, which he actually does pretty good. He's, he's got a good voice for it, including books by John Grisham, Michael Connolly, which is the ones I've listened to, David Callan, and the unabridged version of Bill Clinton's book, My Life. So now another fascinating person, director Robert Greenwald. So you're going to see why when we get into it, like his career here. So he was born in New York City in 1945. And he began directing on Broadway in the 60s and 70s. Then in 1972, he moved to Los Angeles and he began producing TV and movies before he started directing. So his first IMDb credit is for a TV movie called The Desperate Miles about a disabled Vietnam vet who sets out on a 180 mile journey in his wheelchair only to encounter a deranged truck driver. So by 1976, he had already been nominated for his first Emmy for producing the TV movie 21 Hours at Munich. And his other work before Xanadu included TV movies Flatbed Annie and Sweetie Pie, Lady Truckers, starring Annie Potts and Harry Dean Stanton. Okay, and I'm going to put in here, Lee and I started watching this, and it's kind of amazing. Really? There's even like there's even a theme song that's like Flatbed Annie and Sweetie Pie. <laughs> what was it in this time period that we had like just truck? It was just truckers, truckers all over the place, just truckers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but but his like his whole catalog. Here's some of his other TV movies: Sharon, Portrait of a Mistress. And Katie, Portrait of a Centerfold. And that one had Kim Basinger in it. Of course it did. But he's, yeah. But like, seriously, this dude was like um, churning these these guys out. And Xanadu then was his first feature and film. And now, like, as either, Go ahead. as either a producer or a director. So he's transitioning from these like random TV movies. Like some of them were quite serious topics. And then others were like Portrait of a Mistress, right? Into was Xanadu. Was he transitioning? Because if you, now that I know his back stuff, I'm like, well, now Xanadu makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, does yeah. it? What, because like he's me. doing like all these like really cheesy made for TV movie kind of things and like m movies that are supposed to have like substance, but probably actually don't. And then he's going to move to Xanadu, which has like some, some of the stuff probably had like some, you know, comedy in it. He's like, I'm going to move to Xanadu and this is going to be my big break. But also I actually don't know how to deal with like, like actors who act. Okay, we really disagree about the actor qual acting quality in this movie. But but for me, it's like, I think I'm actually super impressed that he went from doing these TV movies to doing a freaking musical. Like, I agree with, like, Gene Kelly's probably right that it probably could have been done in a third of the time and a third of the cost. But, like, to go from, like, directing any kind of thing to a musical is a huge But he didn't leap, know it was right? a musical when so he many... took it, correct? No, he did know okay. it was a musical. That's why he took it. He only took it because okay. it was a musical right. and he wanted to do one. But I, I'm just saying, like, I'm impressed if somebody can jump to that be, at all because, like, the moving parts involved in that are so vast, right? Yeah, but like, did he handle it well? I, did anyway, he handle it well? Question. I, I don't blame Greenwald. No, I don't blame it because, again, remember mm -hmm. in the interesting facts – I was talking about how Greenwald was like the one who came up with the ideas for the musical numbers. So he's like, it sounded to me like he was holding he was. this like lack of a script together and like, plus directing a musical. And I'm just like with Gene Kelly in it, who's probably not the easiest to direct always. And like, I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> kudos to you. All right. Hats kudos off to you, to you sir. Man. Hats off.
Anyway, so the, the, his, his career trajectory continues, though. So this is not the end for Greenwald. Despite, you know, that Xanadu didn't have like this huge success. Throughout the 80s, Greenwald continued to work as a producer and director, mainly of TV movies. In 84, though, he directed the well-known TV movie The Burning Bed, starring Farrah Fawcett. And I've even heard about that because it was like credited with raising awareness about the issue of domestic violence. And I, I definitely remember just hearing about it in the zeitgeist at the time. And he also directed a second feature, Sweetheart's Dance, in 1988. That had some pretty big stars in it, including Susan Sarandon. And then in the 90s, he directed and produced the thriller Hear No Evil, starring deaf actress Marley Matlin, and a rom-com called Breaking Up with Russell Crowe and Selma Hayek, which I got from the library, but I haven't had time to watch yet. <laughs> and, he, and he also continued to produce many TV movies. Okay, then, now, now, now we go to the third leap here, okay, for Greenwald. In 2000, he began a project that would change his career when he founded Brave New Films, a nonprofit film company that distributes documentary shorts and features in support of progressive causes. So you've probably heard of some of his films if you're like on the left at all politically, because he's produced and directed well-known documentaries, including Outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's War on Journalism, Uncovered, The War on Iraq, Walmart, The High Cost of Low Price, Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers, Koch Brothers Exposed, Unmanned America's Drone Wars, and Suppressed the Fight to Vote, and just many, many more. Okay, like I've heard of all of those. Like they just circle, they kind of circulate in leftist circles. Like some of them are like, you'll find them on YouTube. I think they do screenings of them sometimes, like with community groups. He's pretty big, like in this kind of activist, like documentarian, like kind of circles. And he's still making these today. Like, I think the the suppressed the fight to vote was actually I think about like the most recent election. Mm -hmm. So he's he's really out there. He's really cares about these causes, and he transitioned from his knowledge of TV movies to make these documentaries instead. So I think it's just a fascinating career. Like that he's had. well, he's, he's definitely reinvented himself, and clearly he's ended with something that he feels very deeply about, and it's wonderful that when somebody who's like can use their skill set to also like promote their passion. So we have some other important cast and crew. I wanted to give a shout out to Bobby Mannix, who is the costume designer. Kenny Ortega is one of the choreographers, but Jerry Trent was the other one. John Farrar wrote the songs for Olivia Newton-John. And Jeff Lynn wrote the songs for his group ELO, including the title track Xanadu, which combines ELO's talents with Olivia Newton-John's talents. Yeah. All right, let's open the movie. Let's get in oh. there. So I love I love this Universal logo opening. It's crazy. Did, did it stick out for yes. you as well? And it felt like so, it, once again, this movie is over the top and this one just shows it. It's like, I'm going to show you exactly what this movie is going to be about. Look at the logo. It's like, so it's got the universal planet and it's, but it's, everything's kind of like in the sepia tone mm -hmm. almost. And then it starts out like with like two like old timey planes flying around the planet. And the whenever you're away from me kind of 1940s song is playing instrumentally. And then it gets replaced with like a fancy newer plane Xanadu. And then finally a UFO freaking comes by plate with Xanadu. So it's perfectly balanced. There's two of the old time and two of the yeah. new time, which like kind of matches the theme of forties and eighties. As much as the script is being written on the fly, there was so much attention paid to these little mm -hmm. details at the same time. The set, produ the set production I, yeah. in general made me like, I just get excited about the set production. Those people were like doing yeah. some, they were doing God's work. So then we get like this, orange neon flash effect which represents when the muses are, are flying around or whatever <laughs> and, and, and then that 
loops into the title logo Xanadu, which is like this beautiful, sharp, metallic look, which would look great on any T-shirt. And then we switch to a mo- the movie opens on Gene Kelly's character, like who's playing a clarinet by the ocean. And it's weird. It's like almost mythological the way he's playing the clarinet by the ocean in a way to me. Yeah. Like, I like, don't know. like siren or like. Yeah, I don't know. It just makes it just feels kind of ancient to me in some weird way. Also I don't know why. Dapper. Like he's like very like for a dude to just sit and hang him by the ocean. He's very like well dressed. And then we cut from him to Sonny Malone doing his art and he rips up his painting and says, oh, what the hell? Guys like me shouldn't dream anyway and throws pieces of paper out the window and then they kind of travel over to the muse mural. Okay, I'm going to take a pause right here. Do you think that Michael Beck is a good actor? Okay, good. Because I thought you were going to say that Michael Beck no, was no, a Michael good Beck actor. No, no, Michael Beck is the like only that. one, though, who's not a good actor. I felt like everybody else, like, <laughs> held... Like, that's why, like, when you were, like, Mel Gibson, I was like, yeah, this would be a very different film. Because I think yeah, that Olivia yeah. Newton-John, although maybe, like, she's not, like, a, you know, Oscar caliber, for what she's doing, she she does it 110%. You love every minute that she's there. You like what she's doing. And I feel, like, actually, like, even, like... The guy who like owns the studio who comes out and is like blah blah blah. He's even better. Like he's a decent actor. Like I believe everyone who's acting except for Michael Beck. Okay, I'm gonna say that everybody who works at his art place except for maybe the guy who owns it is also not good. I just I just felt that it was so clunky and the dialogue doesn't help. But like I didn't feel there were any like fantastic actors in this movie except for Gene Kelly and like Olivia and John. I love her as a performer. I don't think she's like the world's best actress because I've seen her in other things. But like I mean I'm certainly her presence there is valuable and yeah. good though. Like I would never replace but, her. But in again, a million so years. again, when I look at a film like this, I'm not sitting here thinking um, this is an Oscar caliber performance. But for what this yeah, film yeah. is. Where it's like kind of cheesy and like it has like it's over the top. I I believe that they're all acting within that realm. And therefore I'm like, this is all okay. good acting for what's happening. Now we're going to get to the Muse mural that is like on a wall. And the little pieces of paper fly into the Muse mural. And now we hear the ELO song. I'm alive and the dawn breaks across the sky. Anyway, we come to the awesome ELO song. And the muses are all kind of like gradually coming to life. And when they come to life, they're like all outlined in neon. And I have to say, the last time I saw this movie, The, mu- the Mural, I felt like they were escaping from a trapper keeper. <laughs> okay, I'm here for that. I also like that like they like, each have like a sound, like as they're coming out, like they have, it's like, it's like, like so rock. It's like, as they come out and they come alive. Yeah. Yeah, but just like that mural looks like a freaking trapper keeper to me, and I would buy that trapper keeper. I would like that would be a bitch and trapper keeper. But like anyway, yeah. (laughs) Then they they all come out. Yeah, they all come out. They have the little sound. They have these beautiful like costumes, like the with the puffy sleeves or like the sleeveless and like the loose skirts and like kind of like a timeless look, like like a toga sort of. I don't know. What would you call it? Diversity in our actors here. Like our muses have diversity. Yeah, like like counted, there was at least one Asian muse and one black muse. I don't know if there was diversity beyond that, but even like then in the 1980, that was good to have that highlighted. Yeah. There's actually so, a lot of, I pay still. attention to this now. There's actually a ton of diversity in this film, period. Was there? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, you mean the latest yeah, scenes? scenes. Like, not of our major yeah, stars, yeah, but like yeah. every, I mean, there is a lot yeah. of diversity in this film. It's not just like whitewashed. There's a ton. I think it's because it is just a bunch of artists that like they got together and like, here, you're, you're talented. Come and hang out. Yeah, yeah. 
So we have these really nice, beautiful costumes with the puffy sleeves and the long skirts. We have some diverse actors and they're all dancing around in kind of a circle to I'm Alive by ELO. And um, then the muses start whooshing <laughs> to like how, different that places. That's 100% the, the word we need to use, the whoosh. whoosh. <laughs> like somebody streaking across the Hollywood yep. sign. I don't know where all they were streaking to, but they were like all had different colors. So it was amazing. And then Olivia Newton-John's orange whoosh arrives at Venice Beach. By the way, why is she orange? I wonder. Like, it's like the lightsaber colors. It's like a mystery. Why does one person get one color or the other? I don't, I don't know. know. You'd have to ask the, you know, the ones again, set production, costume, something like that. So she skates up to Sunny. She's on skates because, of course, you're on skates when you're a muse. I guess she's just fitting in. Um, she kisses him and then she leaves. So that's that's our setup. So this is like a quite a way to get yourself into a movie right, right here. So now we get some boring plot stuff out of the way. Sonny goes back to his commercial painting job. His job is to like paint enlarged versions of album covers. Such a bad job. It's so hard to be an artist, man. Are you being sarcastic sarcastic. here? He like complains about like the easiest and best gig ever. I don't know if it'd be the best gig ever. I think it would get quite repetitive after a while. But um, but yeah, he is kind of whiny. I will give you that. The dialogue in the scene, though, I find it so stilted. Just like everyone's like, we thought you were going to be a success really make a go of it yes this is where like i'm like the writing does not shine and so the reason we told you all this is that sunny gets an album to enlarge and then he sees that kira the woman who just kissed him is on the cover outlined in her neon and the album is called for people who are looking for references right away it's the nine sisters album like which sounds like some kind of metal group or something um it would be so metal it would be so metal the nine sisters yeah So Sonny immediately leaves work again to find her. He just got back, but he leaves again. And when he goes out to find, like, who's this girl? Nobody knows who she is. Not the band, not the photographer. Like, she's a mystery. So then I don't even remember why he ends up on the beach, but he ends up on the beach and he meets Danny McGuire, Gene Kelly's character, who's playing the clarinet. You know why he ends up on the beach? No reason. It doesn't matter. He disappears. You cannot follow the plot. (laughs) The plot makes no sense and does not. And it's not cohesive. I'm sure the editor who did this was like, what I did the best I could with what I had. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So then we have a scene where he sees Kira again, roller skating, and he borrows a motorcycle to chase after her. Cause of course, like people are going to give you their motorcycle. Apparently like um, the person, the, the Asian woman who lets him, who says sure when he asked to borrow the, the motorcycle is also the Asian muse named Marilyn Takuda. She was excited to have a, a line. She said in the making of documentary. Yeah. That whole, this whole scene I, is I, so random. You're like, why do you have to get on a motorcycle to chase her? Like, yeah. And, and yeah. what person is like, oh, yeah, no, just bring it back later. I'll be waiting here until you come back. Basically. <laughs> the, other, the other thing I noticed about this scene is that like half the people are like wearing bikinis and like shorts. And then like everyone else looks like they're in a New England fishing village. I'm like, what is going on here? What temperature I did not is it? Notice that. <laughs> well, I could talk about the costuming in this. In this So I think if, if I think when it comes down to it, when I think about the costuming is that they had a certain budget and they're like, we made costumes for you and everybody else. They're just like, just wear something that feels like this feeling. <laughs> the only other thing I can think of is that they like shot on two different days and like one day was super cold and they were just like, fine, you can wear your coat or something. Maybe. <laughs> Anyway, or like it gets really cold by the shore. Yeah. Like it's like 15 feet away. 15 feet away, you're warm, but you get close. No, forget that's about right, it. That's right. That's right. Anyway, when you watch it again, seriously, check this I'm out. I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to. You. 
So he ends up driving the motorcycle into the end of the pier. Fortunately, the motorcycle doesn't fall into the water, but he falls into the water. Um, and then Kira's like laughing at him because she like totally led him on this chase and then like watched him fall off the pier. And she disappears again. And so Sunny goes and hangs out with Danny. Right. This is when you learn that muses are mischievous. Pretty much. Now we have a random scene again. Sonny hitches a ride on the back of a van. Like he's like holding onto the back of the van and he's on skates. And then he gets dropped off at the exterior of the building that's on the album cover that Kira appeared on. And this building, this is interesting. Did you know about this building, Sybil, being an L.A. native? Um, I did not until I read it. But I rec- it's interesting because I recognize the area. Okay. So this is called the Pan Pacific Auditorium, the building that the exterior is used. It was opened in 1935 as a public convention center and performance hall. And then it had closed by 1972. So those no trespassing signs are probably the real ones. Um, And then it was destroyed by a fire, though, in 1989, despite like they tried to make some efforts to preserve it. But no, it ended up burning down. So yeah, so you recognize the yeah, area. I recognize like, the area. It's, it's, it's radically different now. Like it's all built up, and there's like yeah. you know condominiums and stuff around there. But it was interesting because I like, especially with older LA films, sometimes it's like, oh whoa, that looks like that now. That's crazy. It's like a really cool looking yeah. building. It's too. Art Deco. Some people right? describe it's very, like, Art Deco. it. Yeah, I heard another style described too, but yeah, I've heard Art Deco as well. So, what yeah. other style? I'm yeah. curious. I don't know. It was like some really specific, oh. like maybe it was a subset of Art Deco or something. Probably. I don't know. I didn't write Probably. it down, right. but yeah. So Sonny's at this building and he hears the song Magic playing from outside the auditorium. So he goes inside to explore. He sees Kira kind of skating around inside and she's like kind of fading in and out of like view. I love her outfit in this scene. She has like a pink dress this time with like a pink headband and like these and white skates. And I'm going to play a little clip. Um, of their dialogue in this scene, such as okay. it is. You. Me. Hey, I've been asking about you all day. You may not believe this, but I'm painting an album cover and you're on it. Why shouldn't I believe it? Because before today, I never laid eyes on you. Now I've seen you three times in one day. That's a little too coincidental. Sounds like you don't believe it. Well, with all that's happened to me today, to tell you the truth, I don't believe it. You're right. It's too coincidental. Someone must be setting this up. What do you mean? Hey, wait a minute. I didn't have anything to do with this. Really? Yeah, really, I didn't. Hey! Who said I was talking about you? Do you come here often? Yes, I can practice my skating and no one bothers me. You must live around here then. Sometimes. Say, so you think we could uh... see each other again? Yeah. Would you like that? Why? I don't know. I don't have a very good reason. I'd just like to see you again. Where are you? I don't know where I'm supposed to look. Hey, wait a minute. I don't know your name. Kira. Kira. And this is when you learn that Sonny has no game. Kira, Kira, Kira. (laughs) Sorry. 
Yeah, his his act like so like so even just listening to this, dear listener, while you're listening, like you can feel kind of the like mystery in Olivia's voice. You can feel like you know her her being whimsical, whatever. And then he's just like, let me read off a cue card. What is even happening? Ah, like he's so stilted. How did he get this job? I don't know, but like I, I think the dialogue—it would be hard to make something of this dialogue. But it's, it's also beautiful, though. It's so beautifully nonsensical, yeah. and like it's like, and I can see why as a kid I liked it. It seems like a perfect kind of dialogue Absolutely. for a kid. You're like, yeah. easy. Also, as yeah. watching it as an adult, this felt like very like. If you think about it like this, is like you're living in a dream because dreams you don't really yeah. understand. Like the words don't make sense a lot of times. You can't, you can't like hold on to a, a thread of thought. You know, it, so it kind of feels like that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's like the funny, the one of the things I love about this movie too, is like the time period, like you can't really put a finger on it. There's a few movies like that. Like Clockwork Orange is another yeah. one where like everything in the movie feels like it's vintage, but also futuristic at the same time. And you don't really, you can't place an era on it. It's like it came from a time that never yeah. existed in a way. I don't I know. Feel you on that. I, do, anyway. I feel you on that. I know exactly what you mean. You know, you, you can, you can be like, well, these, this has this feeling of this era, but like, also, it's some. It's just like somewhere in space and time. And like, and did you hear the whooshing yes. too? Like whooshing when she's roller time. skating, it's like because <laughs> she's skating around. <laughs> and occasionally disappearing. Right. So yeah, that's the whole thing. And he's there. like, I mean, it's normal yeah, for people to disappear. Whatever. <laughs> Basically. Anyway, any more about that scene, or should we talk about Xanadu in the context of roller skating movies? I was going to talk about this and the scope of, of roller skating movies, so let's move on. So, yeah, so like as we said, one of the inspirations for making this film was the producers wanted to capitalize on the roller disco trend and the roller skating trend of the 1970s. And I put up some of the other roller skating movies down. Have you seen any of the other ones on the I, list that I um? I was obsessed with Solar Babies. Like, in fact, I watched it after Xanadu. When I just watched it for this pod, I watched Solar Babies because oh, nice, I was obsessed nice. with Solar Babies. I also loved, I also really love parts of um, Rollerball, uh, and it is just as magically like cheesy as I remember it to be. Solar barely, Solar Babies barely holds together, sadly. Solar Babies is like actually too one of the ones that came after Xanadu. So if anything, that one might have been inspired by Xanadu. But like, so tell me about this Rollerball though, because I haven't oh. seen that one. That one's from seventy. Rollerball is like so. It's like if you if you take like Mad Max and you put like roller skates through it. That's what it's, okay. it's like. This futuristic time where like you have to like roller for your life and stuff. Which Solar Babies has kind of the same feel, but like Rollerball is pretty badass. Nice, nice. All right, I, I kind of want to see that now. And I also want to see, still, I haven't seen this one, Skate Town USA from 79, which that's a Patrick Swayze movie, actually, as I've well. I've never heard of this, and so now I'm excited to see it, too. Yeah, and so some of the other ones in the 70s and 80s included Kansas City Bomber, which was a roller derby movie, Unholy Rollers, another roller derby movie, Roller Boogie from 79, which I think was probably more of a uh, disco kind of like reference. And then we also had the, the the tail end of this trend seems to be Prayer of the Roller Boys from 1990, which I have not seen, but looked interesting. You're, you're a huge horror fan, correct, Jen? I like horror a lot. I, yeah. I feel like we are missing a whole genre right here where you we could have had roller skating horror. Oh. Right? Like we're just missing it. It would have been amazing. Yes. A roller rink horror Hell movie. Yeah. Yes. hundred yep. percent. Yeah, I could see it. Or somebody who kills on roller so, skates. Whatever. Like, I just feel like, uh, like 
this era needed that. Like it, it really could have used that. All right. I'm noting it down, noting it down for when, after the writer's strike is over, that just started today when we're recording. Indeed. Yeah. So in the movie, we see kind of some of the roller skating element. Obviously people are doing dancing on roller skating. We also see Sonny using his skates for transportation. And apparently this is something people really did in the seventies, like in certain areas of the country. Um, Venice beach like, being one of them, I would still. imagine. Is still, Venice- yeah. Yes, yeah, still. Yeah, still like, um, I mean, you'll probably see more regular roller skates now because, like, it's trendy. But I mean, for a, a long time, it was rollerblades. So one connection they had on the, one advantage they had on the movie Xanadu in terms of the roller skating is one of the originators of roller disco, Bill Butler, who is sometimes called the Godfather of roller disco, and uh, is a New York City skater was a technical advisor on Xanadu. He had also worked on the Warriors, which is why I say there must have been roller skating on on the Warriors, but I haven't seen it. And then he went on to work on Roll Bounce in 2005. So he's a pretty important dude. Like this is a dude who like um, was kind of a foundational roller disco guy, roller boogie guy. Cher actually uh, asked him to be her date for like a roller skating night at one point. Like there's pictures of him with celebrities and stuff. I read an article about him in the New York Times. It was very interesting. And I'll put that in our show notes. Butler says that the roots of roller disco actually go back to the black community. And in a 1979 Rolling Stone interview, he said, we used to call it roller rocking. All they've done is change the names around. Black people have been jamming on skates for as long as I can remember. And like, yeah, he grew up roller skating in Detroit and then in New York City. And like, just as the the music kept evolving until it got to like kind of the disco soul funk era. And then it became like kind of the roller disco that we think of from the 70s. So, yeah. So they had him as a technical advisor and like it's it's the roller skating in this movie is pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's very cool. Okay. And then according to costume designer, Bobby Mannix, many members of the cast and crew would go skating even after they've been working all day at a roller disco called flippers in LA. So they're like, we don't have enough of it. We need to skate harder. Yeah. I don't know. I can't even imagine. It must've been tiring, but maybe some of the people are sitting around all day. And so they want to I mean, to so much of filming is sit Sometimes. around and wait and then, then hurry up yeah. and then sit around and wait. So now um, Sonny runs into Danny McGuire again, and Danny invites him back to his very posh house. Apparently, the character of Danny used to be a clarinetist with the Glenn Miller Band, and he shows off his albums and his posters. And then Sonny's looking in one of the albums, and he sees a photograph of Kira inside the album cover. And um, you can also hear Olivia Newton-John's voice singing on the album, singing You Made Me Love You. That's not on the soundtrack album, but it's another little song you get in the movie. And then we find out that Danny had had a relationship with this woman who looks exactly like Kira. And, t- and he tells Sonny that he shouldn't have let her go. Um, Danny also talks about how he used to own a club before going into construction. And here's an interesting connection. In the 1944 musical Cover Girl, Gene Kelly played a character named Danny McGuire who owns a nightclub. So, wow. Yeah, probably something they put in once Gene Kelly was cast, I imagine. Yeah. And then Danny starts talking to Sonny about maybe he'd like to open a club again, but he can't find the right place. And could Sonny help him? So this is their discussion. Then Sonny just kind of leaves. And then we go into the next number. And I'm going to tell you right now, the next number in this movie with Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John was not put in this movie until after they had finished the movie. That's incredible. They had Gene Kelly. Yeah. They had Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John in a movie and they didn't think, oh, maybe we should make a number right. of them until after. Right. They- like, no, we don't need them together. Forget it. No, they neither neither can sing and dance. Forget it. 
And so then they figured it out and they're like, and they put this together. And apparently um, Gene Kelly is actually, according to Living Newton-John, Gene Kelly is actually the one who choreographed and directed this sequence. And so, yeah, like it kind of shows it's very much yeah. his style. And yeah. And the song for this is called Whenever You're Away From Me. It starts out where Gene Kelly's just reminiscing while he's listening to the album, remembering um, the character who's now known as Kira. We don't know what her name was then. And he's just imagining the scene in back of him, the band playing to the, like the record. And so it's this like little tiny image where Sybil was still able to pick out um, the nice ass of Olivia Newton-John's husband. You can see it. There's a lot of mirrors. You can see it. It's good. (laughs) And then slowly like um, Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John become these kind of transparent images dancing together in the background. And then all of a sudden we have fully like formed Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John dancing together. So yeah, some film scholars have compared like this bit where they're transparent to another bit in the, in the movie cover girl that I just mentioned, where there's also a transparent image of Gene Kelly dancing. And then also the choreography in this scene has been compared once they start dancing, it's been compared to the one he does with Judy Garland and for me and my gal, I personally don't really see that, but there are a lot of standard, like Gene Kelly kind of simple dance moves. Like, it's definitely like a little bit of a dumbed down Gene Kelly dance. I mean, he's kind of older and Olivia Newton-John wasn't necessarily a dancer. Um, She was more of a singer. But yeah, but it's a nice number. I really like this number. I do too. Also, it has like, it has like this very like dreamy quality about it, which I really like. And they're just so good together. So it's nice. Yeah, I mean, Gene Kelly's voice is not as strong as it was when he was younger, you can tell. And like the the filming was not as in sync as some of his earlier numbers. But this is only something I notice now that I've been covering all these musicals. And it's a beautiful melody, yeah. like the, the way their voices blend together is so lovely. This is a great song to sing. This is definitely one of my top three songs from the movie, though, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I, I, I really love this one. Okay, so now we get to an well actually I love all the songs. Like I just said this is one of my top three, but then I'm like, but what about suddenly? That's, that's, that's why that's why I don't I can't I'm like this is a really good one. I can't I can't sit around and be like, I like which one's your favorite? I'm like, I can't. They're all good. And also the, this yeah. movie is not as strong without these numbers. Yeah, I know. It's just like you go from one great song to the next great song for the most of yep. the movie, basically. You're just traveling between them. So we get to our next number is gonna be suddenly the duet that ONJ does with Cliff Richard. Um, first Kira appears behind Sonny while he's painting the album cover at his like workplace. Then she suggests, she finds out that the guy that Danny wants to open a club. She suggests the auditorium where they met before. Um, then Sonny takes her to the recording studio next door to his work. And there are these like backdrops that like, uh, I don't know, people use for record albums or videos or something. And they skate to the song suddenly together felt like the scene was maybe an homage to singing in the rain because like, first of all, there's a scene in singing in the rain where Gene Kelly takes um, Debbie Reynolds's character to like a back lot of a movie studio and sets the scene before he sings a song to her. And then also at one point in the suddenly number, they're both holding umbrellas. So I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. I see what you did there. Robert Greenwald (laughs) or whoever came up with this. So I would like, I love her costume here too. She has like a pink and purple dress this time. And she has these like slits like up the side of this like really like puffy skirt. And I I love that. And her skates look like tall white boots in Mm -hmm. the scene. And then apparently though, during filming this beautiful scene, she fell and broke her tailbone like while earlier. Yeah, like I can't even imagine how she continued to work. I know. Like I, I don't, your tailbone is such a horrible thing to break. And she's like skating and crap. I don't know how she continued to work. 
Yeah, hopefully it was near the end of the shoot or something. My God. I know. Yeah. I was just like, I'm like, I don't know. But it, once again, if we, if, if we had a book about this, we would know more. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Why didn't they write a book? Damn it. Okay, if anybody has heard of a Xanadu book that I've not been able to find, please like write us at feedback at everyromcom.com. <laughs> I want to read this book. I also want to read it. I'm here for this. Anything more you'd like to say about the suddenly scene? This is one of my absolute favorite numbers. And like, I try to think like when I, when I was thinking about how it, what of the numbers could I take away? And most of them are like wonderful and perfect and you really need them to continue this one though. If you take this out of the movie, the movie, like in my opinion, kind of starts to fall apart. Interesting. Okay. I feel like this is almost serving the same function as don't walk away. Like the cartoon one, because they're both love ballads. But they're not but... together. So like they're just in cartoon. I love the cartoon, but like if you took out the cartoon, that the movie's still, you can still yeah. do it. I think you take out this, even with the cartoon, in my opinion, you're just kind of like, that's random and weird. Because you need to see their faces. Yeah. And they're falling in love together. And, you know. Okay. I true, do love that. I do true. love Suddenly. I do love Suddenly very, very much. So my next, the next number we're coming to is my favorite as like a set piece, as like a yes. visual. And that, and that would be dancing, which is the number that we have with Olivia Newton-John and the band, The Tubes. And um, so the setup for this is Sonny is showing Danny the, the building that's kind of like dilapidated that he envisions for the club. And each of them is then imagining the type of club they would like to open. And it's like, so Danny's imagining like a 1940s nightclub with like 40s music. Sonny's imagining an 80s nightclub. And what we're seeing is like supposedly like their imaginations. But the 40s side of this is fucking hilarious it looks like it's like the village people of the 40s like with a cigarette girl like a freaking sailor it's like seriously it's like like all these like archetypes of 1940s totally. people <laughs> i was like what is this it is, it's still random but also this movie is all about like just like it's all about like set production and visuals and it doesn't have to make sense it just is like that looks cool and then the 80s side it's like the entire line of american apparel <laughs> right like everything they ever sold Everyone's like in skin tight this and like different leopards print and shit. There's like fucking bondage going on over there. I don't know what all is happening in the 80s. Side. Yeah, there's a bunch of punk happening. It's I mean, it's 80s, right? So like the only thing they didn't have was a bunch of people wearing like a ton of neon. Yeah, well, also, but the tubes are wearing those like sort of neon-ish orange right, jumpsuits, jumpsuits, which is Olivia's color. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And apparently the tubes wore those jumpsuits on tour later, which is hilarious. That's amazing. I love when people like reuse their costumes. So like, you know what? We love these costumes. Somebody made them for us. We're just going to keep going with that. (laughs) So like, and both, like you said before, like there's a lot of diversity here. So both sides of the equation, the forties and eighties have like a diverse group of uh, dancers in them. So that's nice to see. And yeah, and then the, the the thing that happens though in this song, we saw this with the Music Man too, is we have two different songs that gradually like blend together. And as the songs blend together, um, Robert Greenwald came up with the idea to then move the stages so that the two groups are together in the same physical space. I think how he did it was like one stage looks a little higher and the other's lower and they all come together at the end of the song on the same stage, it appears, mm-hmm. which I thought was such a cool. That effect. is, that's really cool. So I'm going to play a clip of the actual song. Yay, okay. like, um, we're going to hear we're going to hear a little bit of the tubes and then it's going to blend with Olivia Newton-John in the 40s kind of music.
Yes. See, like, weren't you like dancing? Like, <laughs> yeah. you were literally like tapping your foot and moving around dancing. I bet you. Yeah. I I was lip syncing because I wanted to sing. <laughs> I was lip syncing. I wasn't dancing. I was swaying, but I was mostly lip syncing and just like not letting myself sing along because I love that song. I love that song. It's really cheesy, but I fucking love it. But it's like it. so poppy and fun. Yeah. The the tube song is actually kind of like very like male, like uh, aggression almost in parts of like, like the actual verses, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird because like the 40s song is all sweet and shit. But when they blend together, it like just makes the tube song seem sweet too somehow. Totally. I don't know. I just like love the visual of this scene though. And it's a great song. It's a great visual. I think this is one of the most effective scenes in the entire movie. And like when I found out that Robert Greenwald came up with the idea to blend the stages and he came up with a lot of the musical numbers, I was like, okay, Robert Greenwald, anything wrong with this movie? I'm not blaming you. That's what, that's, that's why. Cause I thought this was such a good idea that like, yeah, he must've had some, some genius. There. Totally. So after like this like sequence, which is well, pretty much a dream sequence where they're both imagining the club, like Danny had been really like skeptical about like this space, but now he's like totally enthusiastic and he's, and all of a sudden he's going to make Sonny his partner in his venture. Like Sonny who's totally broke is now going to be a partner in a club. <laughs> like, cause, cause he's going to make an amazing partner. He's just going to be great. And yeah. And he's so cash about it too. He's like, Oh, I don't know. Like, okay. <laughs> it's like this dude just made you like, like, like money. It's like, he uh, can't act. He's power. like, oh, I don't even know what. <laughs> anyway. So then Danny's wondering what to call it. And then all of a sudden Kira appears and she just starts freaking reciting the poem Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And like, I think we were speaking before the podcast, maybe you said that you actually like had memorized this poem. At yes, one point. for drama I had. I had memorized, I had memorized it. And I was surprised that like, I still knew enough of it when I like, like when I looked it up, I was like, oh, I still remember that like a damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw it was a an Abyssinian maid and on her dulcimer she played singing of Mount Abora. Like I could like do the whole like bottom verse. And I was like, that's amazing how the mind is. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. It's in a really interesting poem too. Like, and she recites like just the first part. And I, I want to do Kira and you do Danny's response. So I'm going to do Kira. She comes in and she says, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. Where Alpha the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So yeah, that's what Danny says in response. Like they both know this poem. And like, um, then she's just like, the the place should be called Xanadu, obviously. And they're like, yeah, that's obviously. Yeah. What's interesting about this is it's not only the name of this poem, but it was also used in Citizen Kane. Like, um, the estate in Citizen Kane and the original screenwriter way back in the day before there were muses and shit involved that like he did have the Xanadu element in it and it was meant to represent both the poem and Citizen Kane. So there you go. And what I found out about this actual poem too, the poem was published in 1816 by Coleridge and he said he composed it after having an opium dream after reading a book about Shangdu, the summer capital of the Mongol empire ruled by Kublai Khan in the 1200s. So pretty random. <laughs> <laughs> all random feeling just like it should be here it's like the line from Kubla Khan to Samuel Taylor Coleridge having like an opium dream to this movie it's 100%. just a wild well, the very journey. last line is hold on I'm trying to see no you don't have it here but I believe it's um his flashing eyes his floating hair weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise 
it was, mm. it's about like the poem itself is about like partying and having this beautiful dome that you're going to go hang out in and get drunk and, you know, and, and just like party and dance. Like that's, that's what this is about. I also felt like though, that there was like maybe a muse like character in it because like the, the damsel with the dulcimer. So it says a damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once right. I saw it was an Abyssinian maid and on her dulcimer she played. And then I'll go to the next part. Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight would win me that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air. So just the fact that he's like thinking about a woman who like had inspired yeah. him and now she's like, she, he can't remember it anymore. Like that's very Kira. That's very like, she's here. Right? She's gone. It's all, once again, yeah. it's the whole movie. It's all very hazy. Yeah. It's like, it's interesting. Like this, like, I don't know how purposeful this element was with the muse element, but I like it that it's there. I agree. I agree. I, you know, and as, as a kid, especially I, I loved, I loved the muse element. Like that was all, I liked all the muses. I like that we have Kira, but I love that she had all these sister muses. And I always thought about like, what are they off doing? Now there, if the movie had been successful, man, there would have been a whole series. Yes. Yeah. And we'll talk more about the muses later and their mythology later in the episode. So stay tuned for that. So then there's a final element to this scene is that Danny recognizes Kira because of course he does because she looks exactly the same as she did in the 40s. But she does not acknowledge that she knows him yet. But she's going to acknowledge later that she knows him. So she's kind of weird. It's kind of like she's sort of gaslighting him a little bit. (laughs) Or maybe maybe it's more like she forgets that she knows people and then she remembers again. I can't quite figure out what's supposed to be happening there. But I I think a lot of it is like she's just like, don't remember me because like I'm 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 ephemeral. I'm barely here. Yeah. Yeah. So a whole it's a whole whole thing. thing. It's a whole thing. All right, now let's go on to Don't Walk Away. So now that Sonny is a partner in a club, he quits his job dramatically. He has champagne with Kira, and he tries to get Kira to answer questions about her life and also say she lives on the second floor with her sisters. And, like, that's about it. So, right. This is, because she has nothing else to say. She's like, I have, I have nothing else to tell you, sir, because I'm, I live a different life than you'll ever know. So Sonny and Kira then kiss, and then their images are turned into cartoons, and we get this delightful freaking animation sequence and apparently this was brought in kind of at the 11th hour too because they had this song don't walk away just sitting around they needed to put it in the movie and i guess the easier way at this point was to get don bluth to animate it and he's the same guy who animated the secret of nim an american tale the land before time and much more and so like so this yeah. okay so t- as a kid this was like my favorite scene like i like oh, I'm like, yeah. oh my god we're here we're having like a disney cartoon in the middle of this and when i watch it now i was like this is so like a fever dream. This is like if you dropped a tab and you didn't know what happened. You know, you got <laughs> drugged. You took some shrooms by accident. I'm like, what person was like, this is a great idea. And, and everybody else was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the writer's room. Like, I don't think there was a writer's room, Sybil. I think this was just like, shit, we forgot to put a song, for, a scene for this song. We better do something. <laughs> so we'll have some, we'll have some like, you know, and because uh, like, we don't even have like cartoons and movies right now. Correct. It's not like a thing. But I love it. But I love it. And there's where they're like, oh my God, we have to have a cartoon because like, or is it like somebody's like, I know a guy. I have this guy, Don Bluth. He's an animator. He's great. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll take this and make the song into like a a thing. It'll be great. So in the actual cartoon, they basically, they just emerge from this rose there as cartoon people. Then they turn into like fish versions of themselves. Then they turn into bird versions of themselves. And then they turn back into people and kiss again. It's very simple, yeah. but like, don't walk away is a good song. It's very ill. It, it is. All 
All right. Any more about this one or should no, we, we can move, move on, on to our next one? We can move on with one. everyone. If you've never seen this scene by it's like, just watch this scene. If you're not going to watch Xanadu, <laughs> literally pull this up on YouTube and be like, this happened in a movie. So now we come to the, this is kind of my least favorite song actually all over the world. Like my husband really likes this song. I'm not a big fan of the yellow song all over the mm. world. Where do you come down? I, I like the song. This song I think this number is kind of like boring, but like, I like the song yeah. itself. As for the number, okay, so we'll talk about what happens in the number. They go to this clothing store, and the clothing store was a real store called Fiorucci, um, which was occupied an old movie theater and has since been demolished. Apparently, this was like a really cool Los Angeles clothing store. I'll put an article about it in the show notes where you can see pictures. It looked like it was freaking awesome. They go to this clothing store. The idea is that they need to get Gene Kelly like a better outfit. And like the whole thing is like this like makeover scene for Gene Kelly where they put him in like really, in my opinion, really stupid looking outfits for the most part. Gene Kelly like is is like dapperly dressed all the time. Like you he's yeah, like a hobo. Yeah. You know who needs to be redressed? Our 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 dude, like our main star here. Michael yeah, Beck. He, yeah. He looks like a hobo all the time. So like I don't really understand. This scene was just always really weird to me. And I'm like, did I I don't, even as a kid, I remember being like, look at all the pretty clothing. But like at the same time, I was like, this number was like, I'd go to the bathroom. Yeah. And there's other weird shit going on. Like, so like these mannequins, the store mannequins kind of like are, well, they're dancers. They're, they're the dancers right. in the they first come alive and they're like, But they like, they come alive. There's like these weird dudes with like colored hair that just kind of look around like they're like crazy people. Like sometimes, or they look like the guys from Mad Max, the Fury Road movie that are kind of like, like tweaked or whatever. And speaking of tweaked, this is what Lee said about the scene. He said, quote, I feel like people who are making creative decisions on this movie were doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> I mean, probably, yes, probably. Um, cocaine, uppers, downers, poppers. I mean, very possibly. But I think also like a lot of it was just they're like, I, I, every time I watch this film, I, I think to myself as an as an adult, I'm just like, somebody was like, we can't afford extras except for our friends. But their friends, their friends were like wild. Right. Like, there's like so many odd yeah. things going on in this scene. Like I didn't even mention yet. There's this guy in a spider costume crawling through the legs of women who have also spider themed stockings. Yeah. Like there's like just like that's why Lee said this about this scene in particular because it's just like everywhere you look, something weird is happening, <laughs> and like you're just like okay. I definitely think there was a lot of you know dropping of acid and being like, what's going to be amazing is this. Yes. Lee suggested cocaine because he says it makes people feel like they're a genius. It does. It so. makes you feel like you're alive and you're full of power. Hence the reason everyone in Hollywood. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's the all over the world scene. All over the world. Everybody got the word. By the way, yeah, I just did a little bit. I also feel that we need more quotes from Lee about movies because every time you've included <laughs> one, I've laughed so hard yeah it's just like once in a while like i just write it down and like yeah and then he watches them all with you is also incredible <laughs> like yeah it's really nice it's it's honestly really great like i need to watch more of his movies too like to pay him back because he likes to watch like noir movies a lot and sci-fi and godzilla and i need to get get there for those so okay now we move on to a quiet scene we have care confessed to sunny that she's a muse and like he doesn't believe it at first because of course he doesn't believe it at first they do the whole thing where like 
she changes the dictionary definition of muse to say something about Sonny. Then the TV screen changes to like talk to Sonny, tell him she's a muse. She appears in the TV movie that's on the TV. It's like one of those things. I don't know like what's the first movie that like actually did this kind of thing. It might've even been Xanadu because I've seen this technique in other movies, but I don't know who did it yeah. first. So in the end, in the, in the end of the scene, then um, Kira tells Sonny that muses are not allowed to fall in love. And then she says, I love you forever. And then like with an echo effect again, I'm pretty sure. And then she disappears. She, she likes the echo effect. She really takes advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Well, and you know, the sound people were like, we understand whooshing. We understand echoing of the voice. It's very like mysterious. Yep, exactly. All right. So now we're going to learn a little bit about the Greek muses. And I just want to ask, I don't, I didn't really know much about them. Have is this something you already knew about the Greek muses? I know almost nothing about Greek muses. Um, the only thing I, the only thing I know from, about Greek muses is from the movie, the muse, which is not probably accurate. So like, yeah, I didn't know too much about like muses myself. Like, um, so, but, so I did some background research here. And so basically according to Greek mythology, muses are sister goddesses born at the foot of Mount Olympus. This is the fact that was really interesting to me. The word museum is actually derived from a Greek word meaning seat of the muses or shrine of the muses. So museum that we go to and like see things that inspire us and interest us from muse. That's like from the root of it. Right on. Homer's Odyssey from the 8th or 7th century BC mentions nine muses. So that's when they kind of take shape as like, you know, like having this structure. And then in the 8th century BC, the Greek poet Hesiod listed the muses by name. I'm not going to tell all their names because some of them I can't pronounce, but some of them are like Cleo and Arado, and they all had like different kind of meanings, like that somewhat related to qualities that they expressed. And Calliope, a lot of people have heard of right, that right. one. And the one, and the one that we're dealing with in this movie, um, uh, Kira begins to tell what her real name is to Sunny. She goes, "I'm Tur Turpiscor," is what people assume she mm. was. I think that's how to pronounce it. And that muse, that muse is like kind of meaning is delighting in the dance. So that's supposed to be her muse. Right on. Let's see. And then in Hesiod, um, the poet, Hesiod, the poet further sort of uh, explored the muse's background and said their father was Zeus and their mother, I cannot pronounce her name. Memazin? Memazin? But yeah, yeah, she's kind of like in, in charge of memory, basically. So, so in some other areas of ancient Greece, they had other muse names and numbers of muses, but Hesiod tends to be what's referenced today. Uh, muses are said to be unmarried most of the time, but then sometimes they're also written about as being mothers of famous sons like Orpheus. Mm. So it just, it kind of varies. Muses were depicted in statues, like holding different items. So then like later, I think it was kind of later that people then divided them into certain arts and sciences. So they put Cleo in charge of history and Urania in charge of astronomy and stuff like that. The muse that Kira is supposed to be portraying Terbiscor is usually listed as the muse of dance and chorus. And in some myths, she is the mother of the sirens. That is fascinating to of, me. That is fascinating. Yeah. And they were kind of dangerous, yeah. the yeah. sirens. They were, they were yeah. ugly and also super dangerous. I mean, they lured people yeah. to their death. And it, and also, in like, so in Xanadu, the muse is kind of like, you know, beautiful and inspiring and sweet. And like, they were supposed to be, in, they, the muses traditionally were supposed to be inspiring. They were not at all sweet, though, no. like in this mythology. The muses would take revenge on some myths on mortals who claim to be better musicians than them. There's a myth where a Macedonian king challenged the muses to compete against his nine daughters. And after the daughters lost, the muses turned them all into magpies. Yeah. 
Like, and there's there's other ones where people get their eyes taken out by the muses, all well, kinds of not, shit. So right. it's not Greek yeah. mythology unless there's a bunch of horror at some point, right? Because that, right. that's what yeah. it's all about. Yeah, that's what it's all about. So yeah, the movie The Muse that I learned all of my muse stuff from is a bunch of like women who are kind of the people, the women behind somebody, like creative people, and they're also like getting vengeance. And so it's nice. really, so Andy McDowell, Sybil Shepherd, who's my namesake, Sharon Stone, um, Jeff Bridges. So yeah. Um, you could watch that. And Albert Albert Brooks directed Albert Brooks it, wrote and directed or? it. Yeah, cool. I like. His yeah, I like him too. I like his stuff too. Yeah. Which I mean, I, I don't. I haven't. I don't remember seeing this like many times. But I remember the first time I watched it, being like, "Wow, muses are kind of mean." So some other representations of muses in popular culture, probably the most famous one is Neil Gaiman's Sandman graphic novels, and then the Netflix show has a muse character. Um, and then there's the Disney film Hercules. There's a 2017 horror film called the called Muse. And then as mentioned, there's the 1947 musical Down to Earth, which was a partial inspiration for Xanadu. I've still not seen it yet. I've heard it's not super great, but yeah, <laughs> it's got Rita Hayworth. So, you know, it could be all right. I don't know. Anyway, I hope you were amused by our Muse section, yes. listeners. Oh. Yes. And that's just that low hanging fruit right there. Come on now. So now we're going to go into our spoiler section. So if you've not seen Xanadu, I mean, come on, what, what are you doing? Not having seen Xanadu, go and fucking see also, it. Also, there's nothing to spoil about this movie. Like, well, there really isn't. We're going to do but it seriously, anyway. We're, we're going to not talk about everything, but literally you can't really spoil this movie. It's a fever dream. But the, the wildest parts of the movie are still yet. That's to true. That is true. Listeners, so yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. This scene. Okay. <laughs> so now we come to the fall, which is another ELO song. Sonny's like super depressed because Kira left. Danny tells him to go find her. The song The Fall plays, which is a super melancholy, dramatic song. Danny's just skated along the Venice boardwalk, depressed. Then he sees the Trapper Creeper Muse mural. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and he's like, oh shit, if I skate into this directly, I'm going to end up in Muse land, which is like, seriously, I just realized, like, I wonder if AHA got the idea for Take On Me partially from this. I don't I'm not know, sure. but let's do it. <laughs> Because, like, when I look at it now, I'm like, oh, he's going to take on me that shit, man. He's going to get in there. <laughs> also, I just want to see the world where, where, like, I'm standing outside watching this, and he skates, and he actually doesn't go through anything, but just slams into the wall. But in his mind, he's so high that he's like, I'm having an aha moment. <laughs> oh, Sybil. Of course you want to see someone yes, benefit. I of totally do. do. I totally do. So he ends up, like, he actually successfully skates through this wall. And he ends up in this, at first in this like black windy void, but then the void fills out with like orange neon lines. And like, I've never seen Tron, but then I looked at pictures of Tron and I'm like, oh, holy shit. Tron probably partly got this idea from totally. Xanadu. It came out in 1982. Totally. So what I find also amazing about this scene though, is like Sunny shows up to like the Greek God dimension or whatever, wearing like a red <laughs> yeah. unbuttoned Hawaiian shirt and these like short red shorts and roller skates. And this like, just seems like weird. Short red roller skating shorts. Like, you know, the ones people, you know, the ones from the seventies where you're just like, what? And like, they're like so close to booty shorts. And he's super casual too. When he talks to Zeus, he's like, Hey Zeus, you hear me? Yeah. He's, he's never like, by the way, Zeus, I happen to know that you have, you know, turned people into a uh, horrible things and, and you have all this mighty power, like whatever, bro. So like Zeus and here are voice actors only. Lee noticed that he recognized the voice of Zeus. And it turns out it's the actor Wilfred Hyde White, who was Colonel Pickering in My Fair Lady. What? Yeah. Lee, I, hats off to you, sir. 
So like he's having this discussion with Zeus. They've put Sonny into like some sort of laser prison thing, kind of like in Superman 2. Yeah, like it's a really a clumsy like comedy scene, this whole thing. Like Zeus and here are just like, I keep getting it mixed up, like whether it's one moment or a hundred years. And like then they say stuff like in our mortal history class. And I'm like, what? What what even is right? this? You're just like, what guys? I don't think it matters. The, the point is, it's just supposed to be, he's like, I'm going to come fight for my lady. This scene, I guess it needed to be there plot wise, maybe, but like. It is uh, weird. It, it's it no. probably among one of the weirder scenes, but it's still, it's still yeah. fun. Like it's like to visually, it's still like fun. I guess so. Yeah. I would say the next scene is not visually fun though. Cause we're still stuck in neon land and Olivia Newton-John sings the entire song. The entire song is suspended in yes, time. And- it's not my favorite song either. It's a nice yeah. song, but it's like not dynamic. Yeah, I agree. Because it's it's like hopelessly devoted to you, right? It's like that same feel. Yeah, it's that yeah. vibe. Yeah, but she's not looking in ponds or anything cool like that. Yeah. <laughs> nope, she's just yeah. standing. They're like, we ran out of budget. We're about to blow it all later. Don't worry about it. Okay, so dude, here's another thing. Like I watched like this 1980 era documentary like about the movie and there was a scene where Suspended in Time was playing and she was like holding Sunny and they were singing it together. Like they were filming this like while the documentary was filming them and I'm like, shit, they were going to do a whole different version of this. And they, you could tell too, they were having trouble filming it because they kept changing their mind about how he should put his arm. And I'm like, finally, it looks like they were just like, fuck it. We can't make this work. Just put her in a black box and let her sing. And they're like, we're over time, we're over budget. Just have her stand there. It's it's fine. Whatever. We're just out. The digital effects people will take care of it. Or maybe we'll make another cartoon. Like, really, they could have done that. We'll fix too. that in post. We'll fix that in post. So at the end of the song, um, Hira and Zeus kind of, like, talk to each other. And they're kind of hinting that, like, Kira can go back. Like, maybe for just one moment. Or forever. I keep getting them mixed up. And so, you're like, you know, you kind of get a feeling things are going to work yeah. out for her. Uh, yeah, yeah. Although why the fuck like Terpiscor Kira would want to like date Sonny Malone when she could have like had like, she says she's like, they've inspired Shakespeare and Beethoven, not to mention like hot 1940s Gene Kelly. Right? Like, but, but this is the guy. This, yeah, guy. this is the guy that she's like, I'm here for. I'm here for. Now we've got the big motherfucking event. Like this is the, what we've all been waiting for, for the whole yeah. movie. Right. This is like the thing. So we come to the Xanadu finale, the club opening scene. Like this scene opens, there's a neon orange Xanadu sign. And then we see Gene Kelly kind of skates into frame, smiling in a tuxedo. And there's like, for some reason, jugglers like juggling things like in his path, like or whatever. Like, I'm like, I don't know why, but it's amazing. This whole sequence is like, just throw a bunch of like stuff together and watch chaos. It's so if you've ever seen a Cirque show on, in Vegas, this is what it's like. Nice, like nice. There, you can't. It doesn't matter where you look, you're gonna see something. And so, like, yeah. And so, like, one of the things holding it together though is like we're seeing the club for the first time, and there's this kind of center like stage area that's like this kind like, of white circle with like neon lights that light up different sections of it. And then around it, like, is a roller skating rink track. And then on the sides of the roller skating rink, on the very outside, like, are, like, also little club nook areas and a bar and all this shit. Anyway, Gene Kelly's, like, leading this group of people on the skating rink, like, going around the stage. And he's such a good skater. By the way, like, the way he's skating in the scene is very reminiscent of the movie It's Always Fair Weather from 1955, where he did an amazing skate scene. Anyway, he's skating. He's followed by all the people who seem to work at Xanadu. Um, Everyone's wearing like a mixture of 40s and 80s clothing. And like while Kelly and these people are skating, there's also like chanting 
and like um well i'm gonna play a clip yeah. okay, right, i'm this, gonna play a if anything needs a clip jen this needs it because like there's so much sound that's going on chaos. yeah yeah yeah, yeah chaos so i'm gonna play a clip but you have to understand when you're hearing this clip you are not even getting close to like a sense of what's no. happening okay like while this clip is playing there's going to be Gene Kelly skating, but then Gene Kelly's going to be in split screen. Then he's going to be in triple screen. Then there's going to be a giant X as the song Xanadu starts. So just imagine chaos and skating. And, and here's the sound. probably have come more of that but i love that song so yeah, much sweet. the very first part kind of feels like it's all this chaos stuff but like the like stomping and the like the like people clapping and saying xanadu it feels very much like the scene from logan's run where you're you're getting ready for like them to pick who's gonna die oh interesting i've never seen logan's run That's yeah so like it kind of has this that that vibe to it like i would have understood if everyone like she like went out and she's like music like people gonna die now I would have been like, I'm here for it. I understand. I understand the mission. So can I tell you something? This is like, I forgot to tell my theater story, but this is a perfect place to tell it. So like I once saw Xanadu at a midnight showing in Seattle when I lived there in like the early 2000s. And it was a midnight showing in Seattle in the gay neighborhood in Seattle. I ended up being probably the only woman in an audience of probably mostly gay men. And everyone in the freaking audience, when this part started with the clapping and the stomping, they were freaking clapping and stomping in unison with the yeah. movie. And some of them were doing like the Xanadu and the Ho and the whole thing. And I was like, this is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. Like it was like one of the top movie screenings I've ever been to in my life. It was so fun. Yes. It was so much. Energy. That seems like appropriate. Like yeah. this is like they understood the assignment. It was it was just a wonderful experience. And like this movie really does like mean something to a lot of people or it just makes people feel it happy. It does. It really does. It really yeah. does. 
And like, okay, another thing, like this is obviously a song written for a movie, but it almost may as well be a movie written for a song, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> If you if you had just heard that song and then your assignment was make a movie out of it, I feel like there you are. This is what you got right here. There's so much stuff going on. This whole scene, you could break down by like each like little like outcropping group of things where people who are doing stuff. They're like jugglers. There's firefly flowers. There are people who are like bending themselves in weird ways. Like there is so much just happening. And the costumes, the costumes. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much costuming. Cause like there's also, okay. So this isn't even the last song, right? Like they are going to go back to Xanadu at the end of the movie. But it, before that happens, there's like a little 1940s number on the, like the, the stage, the circle stage it's filmed from above. And I did l- look into this. It was inspired by Busby Berkeley. Yeah. It's not as cool as the Busby Berkeley scene, but it was inspired by that. They said, and like, so you get these aerial shots of dancers, like doing little patterns and stuff. So they do the forties. Then she goes into this, like, the song is called, as far as I can tell, the song is called Fool Country. And it's like two different Olivia Newton-John songs. One is like this rock song, like, Fool, I can't really, I don't know the words to it because it's not on the album. And then she, and she's wearing this leopard print and shit. And then she goes into like, right from there, this really bad country number, in my opinion. It's like, and she's wearing this like white jacket with fringe and i'm just like she could sing good country but this is like some weird urban cowboy crap happening here i don't know and then she goes back into xanadu so like that's just olivia's part though like you said there's stuff going on everywhere everywhere yeah yeah and she comes back and she comes back in this like jumpsuit this like this like metallic jumpsuit and like finally at like the very end, like you get the muses come onto the stage with her. They might have been there the whole time, but I didn't they are, recognize. They're, they're in the background. Course. So if you pay attention, they're kind of like in the background doing things. They're also in the roller skating section, some of the muses, not all of them at once, but like they're all like you see them around. But in the last, the very last part of the dance where they sing Xanadu again, the muses are there with her and they all shift into their muse dresses. And then they all like shoot up and disappear into the sky. And Sunny appears at that moment to be the only one in the club, but then the p- club is repopulated again. Also, Lee pointed out another interesting thing. <laughs> like, it doesn't seem like there's anybody just visiting this o- club opening. It seems like everybody's either performing at right. it or they're like working yeah, there. I, don't, I, I actually don't, know. don't understand this club either. It doesn't have a particular theme that I understand or like what you're supposed to be doing. Like, are you roller skating? Are you dancing? Are you watching performances? Like, what is going on? Like, is there any food? Too would be Can about- I buy concessions? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> it is the craziest crap you've ever seen xanadu 2 is about the acrimonious failure of this nightclub i'm afraid like and how they have to burn it down for insurance money this yeah. whole number is bonkers and it is worth it is the worth the culmination to where we've gotten yeah this is really one of the most fun scenes that's ever been made in a yeah, movie. I agree. Really. It really is. Like Gene Kelly on roller skates, like all the wild costumes, Olivia Newton-John singing, like, come on, come on. Yeah, it's, it is, I'm sure that they spent a week filming this easily. Yeah, I didn't look into that part, but yeah, I, I can't, I, probably more than a week, I would think, but I don't know. I don't, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. And like, when you get here, this is, this is what you want when you have a spectacle. Like you want that end number to be bananas. And it is. So let's see, um, anything else? Want to talk? Okay, so just wrapping this up, like, so they, the muses have disappeared. Sonny's like moping again. Um, Gene Kelly then goes to talk to him and then he summons a waitress over that he says is going to cheer Sonny up. And the waitress is Kira again, 
But like, again, she's acting like she doesn't know Sunny. So I'm like, does her memory get erased when she comes back? Or she just thinks it's fun to pretend she doesn't know Sunny. But then they start talking and smiling, but not like they're dating. It's weird. The whole thing's a little odd. I have no idea what the direction was for this. It's always weird. You're like, okay. I don't know. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It's it's a mystery. You're just supposed to be like, they had a happy ending. I personally would have felt happier if they'd kissed or like they'd acknowledged that they still know each other. But, but you know, what are you going to do? They have no chemistry. So... It's okay. Yeah, they kind of don't. They, they kind of don't. If she had hooked up with Gene Kelly, I would have like sense. they had so much more chemistry. I would have been like, dude, it's so you true. like the older men? That's cool. I mean, technically, you're like a million years old and eternal, so yeah, that's cool. That's that makes right. sense to me. Are there any final thoughts you have about the movie before we like just briefly touch on the soundtrack? Everyone like, should watch Xanadu once, even if you yeah. think you're not going to like it. Watch it with friends. Like, sit down and have, like, an event of it. Like, you don't have to take it seriously, but I guarantee you'll leave being like, that was a lot of fun. If you ever get a chance to see a midnight showing of Xanadu at the Egyptian Theater in Seattle, definitely go. Hell yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to talk briefly about the soundtrack. The soundtrack did very well. It had five top 20 hits. They were Magic, Xanadu, Suddenly, All Over the World, and I'm Alive. So, like, a blend of the ONJ and ELO songs. And by the way... I just really wish Olivia and John and ELO had worked together more yeah. than this. Like they had done more songs together. They blend. They really, really well do. And they, they could have made, they could have made beautiful music literally together. If they had had another musical that was like, like better written, that would have been amazing True. as well. But yeah. So, or maybe it couldn't be replicated. Maybe this is just the magic it needed to be. I don't know. And speaking of magic, that song was number one in the U S for four weeks I love that song. It's kind of like if I had to choose a personal theme song, I would go with Magic. I love that song so much. Right on. And Xanadu, though, only reached number eight in the U.S., but it was like a huge hit internationally, which makes sense to me for some reason. It seems like a European it does, vibe it does. It to has, me. It has very European-like yeah. feel to it. Just to tell a little bit about ELO, we don't have time to go into them in depth, but just like Olivia Newton-John, ELO was most active in the 70s and into the early 80s. They had released albums pretty steadily from 1971 to 1986. And then in 1986, Jeff Lynne disbanded the band. Um, They had a brief reunion in the 2000s. And then Jeff Lynne restarted the band as Jeff Lynne's ELO in 2014, which I didn't check out the music yet, but I'm kind of curious about So now we know who Jeff Lynne is, where he's a dude who controls things. Yeah, he's he's basically the main guy, the main force in ELO. Yeah. And some of their hits, in addition to the songs from Xanadu, were Mr. Blue Sky that you mentioned, Don't Bring Me Down, Evil Woman, Living Thing, tons of others. All right. So like now we're going to do our double feature recommendations. And I think we're going to do them and I'm going to do a batch and you're going to do a batch because mine is themed. I have a theme to double feature this time. So my theme for my double feature recommendations is other musicals with roller skating scenes. So uh, the first one for this is Gold Diggers of 1933 from 1933, which I also had as a double feature, if you may recall, on Top Hat. Um, Gold Diggers of 1933, when I first watched it, I'm like, oh, my God, it's freaking Xanadu. Because, like, all of a sudden there's this huge production number and people are on roller skates. And I'm like, what is this? I didn't know this was something people would have done in 1933. And I thought it was so awesome. It is a bonker scene also. Um, like it's for, for the song called Petten in the Park, which is kind of a dirty song. Yeah, yes. And, uh, and, um, and there's all kinds of crazy shit going on in this production. Number two, there's like this weird kid who's kind of like a baby and kind of like a man face at the same time. And he's on skates and there's these women like wearing metal corsets that guys are trying to cut off of them with scissors. Like 
all kinds of crazy things are happening and roller skating. And you got to see gold diggers of 1933. Like um, if you like bonkers musicals, like Busby Berkeley is like the dawn of the bonkers musical. Mm. Really got to check it out. All right. Then um, the second one is shall we dance from 1937, which is an Astaire Rogers movie. And there is a scene in that one um, where they dance on roller skates to let's call the whole thing off. And like, it's not as bonkers as that one, but it's a nice um, duet dance scene. And of course it's a great song and Astaire and Rogers are great. And shall we dance also has my two favorite um, comedians from some of the Astaire Rogers movies, Edward Everett Horton and Eric Bloor, who are always super funny in these movies. So shall we dance is definitely worth your time. And it's a fun roller skating scene in there. And then finally, like, so this movie, I don't like quite as much. This one's, it's always fair weather from 1955, but the scene is amazing. Um, the scene in this one, I like myself is Gene Kelly on roller skates and he is tearing up the pavement. He is doing amazing things on these roller skates. Um, if you like him skating in Xanadu, you should have seen him when he was in his forties or whatever. Oh my God. Amazing. It's like, just if even just like look this up on YouTube, um, Gene Kelly, I like myself or Gene Kelly. It's always fair weather and just check out his skating in this scene. Beautiful to watch. The movie itself, um, he does have some cool scenes as well with Sid Charisse. They have really good chemistry. And it's basically about soldiers who used to be friends reuniting again. And they're not getting along quite as well. And will they be able to work that out? So, yeah, these are all great, interesting movies to see. Right on. And then because you didn't mention it at all and because you apparently don't like it, I will also give Grease as an honorable mention double feature because it's Olivia Newton-John's other good musical. So I know you don't agree, but I yeah, like I do it, not. So. I do not like Grease. I'm not a fan of it's not my it's not my jam. Um, all right. Yeah, like I was talking to somebody recently because they just came out with the Pink Ladies. And so I'm like, well, yeah. maybe that'll not suck. And I was like, no, this sucks. I can't watch this crap. So <laughs> it's, fair not, enough, fair enough. it's not for me. That is for sure. All right. So let's go to my double feature. I have I have ones that feel like Xanadu. And now that I've done this podcast, I know the reason why I picked a bunch of them because they really do feel like Xanadu. So the first one is Mannequin from 1987. So it's um, Kim Cattrall is in this and she plays yeah. a mannequin who comes to life and like chaos ensues. Like it's the it's the most bonkersest movie because apparently in the 80s you could just do really weird crap. And isn't like Andrew McCarthy yeah. the love interest? Yeah, Andrew McCarthy yeah. the yeah. love interest, yeah. and he's he's like awkward and like very Andrew McCarthy. Um, but it is it is a really beautiful love story, and I, I really like Mannequin. It, it holds up. I did watch it before I recommended it, and it holds up. Okay, okay, it holds up. Yeah, I watched I watched it a lot when I was a kid, but I haven't seen it. It, since it does then. hold yeah. up. It's, it's a little cheesy, but it holds up. And the love story is really good. Um, the next one is Earth Girls Are Easy, which is a movie that like. I don't, not enough people have seen it. It's from 1988 and it has Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum and Jim Carrey in it. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> and they're like in their prime. And there is a lot of like eighties rock music in it. And Jeff Goldblum, who is our other star is so Jeff Goldblum. Nice. Uh, and then we have the pirate movie, which. Yes. The pirate is, movie. It feels yes. just like you're watching Xanadu, <laughs> but with pirates. It's it, right. <laughs> my, it's right. Right. It's. Okay, but it's not the songs are like way not up to but I but I agree with you. It has the same mood, but the songs are like so not even close to as good, except for some of the ones that are actually from Pirates um, of Penzance. The Pirates of Penzance, the original. Yeah, yeah so yeah, it's yeah. making fun of I mean go it's ahead, making fun on. of the Pirates of Penzance. But 
it's and, but, and like the singing is, is solid like i'm not saying that they're well crafted but the singing is good it is also just the weirdest movie like as a kid i thought this movie was amazing i just watched it as an adult yeah. and i was like i mean it's still weird i don't know if it holds up as well but it is weird yeah i watched it recently too and i was like oh i don't like it as much as i did when i was yes. a kid but like it's definitely it's got these really quirky things and like animation just popping up out of nowhere christina mcnichol they seriously wanted olivia newton john for that movie you, you could tell, tell. they're like, like they even try to make her look like olivia newton john her costumes even kind of look like the muse costumes and yeah you're like, you're like why like, didn't well, olivia do this was she too much money at this point was she busy because this is the weirdest movie that she could have done she was in her physical workout phase at this point. So yeah, probably that was the That's whole. a shame because like she, she would have <laughs> elevated this film to a different level and they would have had more songs because she would have been like, we need different songs. Yeah, maybe they could have gotten Gene Kelly to be the Pirate King. No, <laughs> I mean, I would have watched that as well. But it's, these are all, these are all excellent films to be watching with Xanadu. So you can watch Xanadu over and over again with different films. Exactly. You got to have a Xanadu party. You got to have a whole Xanadu lifestyle. Yeah, from now on. Xanadu 100%. theme. All the way through. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> All right. Well, Sybil, it was awesome talking about this old movie with you and the pirate movie as well, because nobody else has ever seen that except for you and me. What, I, don't, I still don't know if I've ever talked to anyone else who's seen that except for us. So I don't uh, know. Yeah, I've never met anybody who saw it either. So, but I don't understand. It was yeah. it played all the time. It was on, it was on TV all the time. So I don't understand. Well, anyway, it has been awesome talking about this with you. And um, in our musical series, I actually don't know what we're going to have next yet because like we're going to have to have a, a sort of abridged musical series because we're going to try to release an episode on Can't Hardly Wait ahead of its 25th anniversary. Oh, that's exciting. It's part of our high school movie series. So yeah, stay tuned for that and a couple more musicals. And yeah, thank you for listening today. And yes, uh, talk to you All later. Right. Goodbye. It's been a pleasure. Bye.